Hi, welcome to the latest episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, here to talk about the latest episode of Bad Faith Podcast featuring California Assemblymember Ash Kalra talking about why he declined to force the vote on California's statewide Medicare for All Bill AB 1400, despite the fact that it's an overwhelmingly majority, uh, overwhelming majority uh, Democratic legislature and overwhelming majorities of California voters support the bill. Many people, including the nurses that he organized with, thought, hey, force the vote on this thing. And at very least, people will realize the extent to which so many of these elected Democrats in the state take corporate money and are bought off in much the same way Gavin Newsom was. But he ultimately had different strategic uh, considerations that I pressed him on on this week's episode. We can also talk about the live stream that happened last night and how you were feeling about electoralism and the less continued support of it. Maybe, maybe not. Last week's episode, which was quite controversial on Twitter, and anything else that's on your mind. As always, I will play a new clip to orient ourselves. I just posted this on Twitter a little bit of time ago, uh, and I want to know from you what you think. Here we go. Help me understand what I'm missing, because it seems to me that if I'm ex-moderate, who you know, although the public doesn't know, is not willing to vote for this. Whoever's going to challenge them, you said three months from now, is going to do it. Those campaigns are already in full swing. So whether or not somebody challenges them and quote-unquote hardens their position is not going to be, it's not going to be on the basis of this vote. Will this vote, them voting down the bill, become a part of the campaign that's already ongoing? Sure. And will some of those candidates lose in challenging incumbents? Of course. Of course. But it's difficult for me to see if someone is hardened in their views already and is probably already getting dinged for not being as progressive as the constituency they represent, that a public vote on this issue is going to be dispositive as to whether or not it's going to be, your vote tally is going to be better a year from now. There does, however, to me, to seem to be obvious upsides to having a vote, not just getting people on the record, but also elevating this issue to um, in, in the press in a way that you've articulated you've struggled with. And also, I got to say, you are very personally taking a lot of blowback for not forcing a vote on this issue. And your kind of credibility is also implicated in all of this. And, and I want I it's difficult for me to understand you know, why those factors are militating in favor of going ahead and having the vote. I just, unless you have specific members in mind who have basically said to you, if you force a vote for me this year, I'm 100% not going to vote with you next year. And you have confidence that there is any real chance that they're not just bluffing about voting for you next year. I don't see, I don't see how it makes a difference. And I also would be very, very skeptical of anybody who's telling you behind closed doors, yeah, totes, not this year, but the next year, because the financing, timing, yada, yada, whatever, you know? Yeah. So two things. One is I absolutely knew that, you know, the way I'm putting it is I'm protecting the policy at my own political peril. I, I know that I was going to get the, the brunt of the blowback. And that, that was without a doubt. And I'm okay. That's, you know, I'm, I was okay with that. Not everyone that was not voting for it is hardened in their position. And I know this because there are other issues that have come up over the last few years on progressive legislation, whether it be environmental, whether it be labor rights, whether it be immigration issues, where people have changed from year over year from not voting to a yes position. And so that's where, from experience, I know that it is possible, even on tough issues, even on tough votes. But these are corporate candidates. These are candidates that take corporate money. 
but a lot, but I'm not talking about the ones. But, but, but everybody of, does in California, apparently. I mean, yeah. And so we, yeah, I mean, almost everyone does. So the reality is I have seen that change of heart. And not even change of heart. I've seen a change of a vote from a not voting to a yes position because of a couple of factors, because you can get the vote count up and because you have more of an opportunity to engage. And that, that was my calculation. All right. That was his calculation. What do you make of it, Clifford? Hi, hey, Bree. Hey, Clifford. How goes um, it? What, what do you make of all of this? Well, I mean, I, I've called in a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I always kind of say the same thing. And uh, But uh, I uh, I watched that episode and I watched the live stream last night. And um, one thing just while it's stuck in my head, because I'll lose track if I don't say it. But mm-hmm. I, I really like, you know, I... I watched the whole thing, you know, I, I really liked seeing the people who I saw and, uh, and I liked, I agreed with everyone's ideas and everything like mm-hmm. that. Marion Williamson made a comment early on that I just, uh, it was about, it was about like woman suffrage movement. And I thought that it was a good comment, but it was an answer to something about electoralism. And I was thinking that was a little ironic to use that as an example, because it wasn't um, really electoralism that led to the success of the women's suffrage movement. Um, and, and I thought that it was, you know, and, it, and I just can see all these historic examples where oh, I'm, elaborate I'm, on that. Would you please, for, for those who don't know? Oh, sure. Yeah. So like, well, I'm more familiar with the women's suffrage movement in, in Great Britain, to be honest. So I will admit my, like my, ignorance but it was it's kind of like a hallmark campaign of like of like strife and like a a movement of like incredibly brave women who like gave up their liberties at times and uh engaged in actions that they were labeled terrorists they were labeled all these things some of it was a lot of it was disruption and was civil disruption and it gets kind of co-opted by like some violent uh, you know, episodes, but I, I just, I just use that. And, and I'm sorry that I don't know more specifics. No, it's okay. I just thought you were alluding to, I know during the force of vote, um, several folks, uh, I remember, I remember making the, remember the boys over at the Vanguard, sorry, they're adults, the men over at the Vanguard making the argument, um, that, uh, the, Basically, the vote was forced and failed several times on women's suffrage. Um, sure. And that yeah. was an example of how these kind of things work. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. And I think yeah. I, I pushed back. It came up later in the episode and Katie actually pushed back against that. And I think both Katie and I were a little frustrated because that, you know, your your ancestors have fought and struggled and died for you to have this right kind of rhetoric mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. been deployed and weaponized so much to make people vote blue no matter who. Right. And so even though I think we can all have respect for the sacrifices that people made before us, it is not really dispositive when it comes to whether or not one should vote for any given candidate. And I think why we were why I wanted to be there last night was to ask people why they were different than the people that have already been elected and which have caused there to be so much um, so many disaffected folks on the left today. Yeah. And as always, I really enjoyed your contribution. And I really look to you when I like informing my own opinions. I just always appreciate your insight. And it's always invaluable to me just to think about an issue. And in light of that, and you made some comments recently about how you uh, 
you said you were a fan of Russell Brand or you expressed like a wish to like have him on your show or mm-hmm. you be on his show. And I would I would be so thrilled to see that. But he's definitely come out and said, you know, like electoralism will not work, you know. Mm. And I was just wondering, maybe like, you know, because I just I just keep looking around at all these these things I want to move on. And uh, and uh, they and I see like historic precedent and I see the the depths at which uh, institutions have had to be overcome by like, you know, all these crazy methods. And I and I honestly I'm I'm struggling to find a lot of ways in which electoralism has been the the thing that can the goalpost you know the thing that can be moved easily and especially now how entrenched things are and you know like just all those quotes the every chris hedges thing you know yeah you and i see you kind of like kind of like like you know like getting um just like almost exacerbated like or uh, exasperated by like Mm -hmm. this line of questioning which i thought as always you do a great job with with uh like this hang up in the electoral thing and i just think our left is kind of this weird capitulating left that like you as like the benchmark for for me anyways of where the left is at and i know that's probably a lot to put on you and you're just like you always say you're always just figuring this stuff out but i really also i like i should be a lib do you know what i mean like in any world that made sense where i am politically should be so basic like i'm i'm a capital b basic bitch (laughs) do you know what i mean yeah And, and part of what is so frustrating to me are you guys getting a lot of echo or is it just me? Oh, sorry. Let me. No, it might not be your fault. I just feel like I, I need more carpets in my new apartment or something. It could be on, on my end. But anyway, I just feel like it, it boggles my mind that, you know, people say, oh, you know, you're relatively affluent. You don't know the feelings of people on the ground. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, totally. So why am I willing to be here? <laughs> why am Why is someone like me who has such relative privilege in the world willing to you know, why do I get it? And so many people don't. I feel like I should be very much center. I wish I were center right. You know, I wish where I was was center right. And it really frustrates me that so often I feel like the radical in the room. Well, I mean, I, I just want to jump in here. That that always begs the question for me um, in the United States is, well, does the left exist? And if so, what is the left? Uh, and I think, you know, there's a dialogue between more left-leaning elected officials on the federal level and otherwise, and what I think is more of the true left um, that lies mostly outside of electoral politics that really hasn't been pushing issues like this as a priority uh, to some degree. Let me let, let me, me introduce let you. Me introduce you. Also, also, I think there's I definitely, think there's feedback. definitely feedback. feedback. I can hear myself. Do you have earphones? Maybe you could put in while we're we're doing this. Um, I might help so that you don't have to mute every time that I speak. But let me introduce you to the audience. I'm so glad to be joined by Dr. Daniel Lee, uh, who is running for Congress in the great state of California. He participated in our um, live stream last night, and I think responded really compellingly to the line of questioning that I put to him. You know, everyone, you know, I each were, we divided up candidates. So not everyone got the kind of questions that I wanted to answer, but I found myself really wanting to ask you more and talk to you more. So to, to the extent that people have skepticism about electoral politics, please tell the audience why you've chosen to run and how, you know, what you would say to people who are skeptical that you or any number of candidates aren't going to be any different, aren't going to behave any differently than even Ashkara, 
who up until he didn't force the vote on this issue was a champion of the AB 1400. But ultimately, according to what he said in the episode, ended up deciding that he might have another bite of the apple if just a few more people got elected next year and that he didn't want to call out any of the people who were willing to vote down this bill despite its popularity. How, how should people understand your run and why you would behave any differently in one of these kinds of scenarios that elected officials are, are always per, uh, presented with? Sure, and I really appreciate that question because I'm a highly uh, skeptical, sometimes cynical person. Uh, but I, you know, I keep myself moving forward because I know uh, because of the state of politics in the United States in particular, and to some degree around the world, if those of us who think we can maintain our moral center and our empathy and our compassion don't run, things are just going to get darker and darker. But I'll answer your question by saying um, when I first ran for city council in my small city in Culver City, California, and I won uh, the first time I lost, the second time I won, I, you know, I went through a whole lot of debate in my mind because my background is, you know, I was very involved in Occupy here in Los Angeles, visited DC and New York and Chicago, um, you know, been arrested at the Black Lives Matter protest. My, my biggest push in the last decade has been with Move to Amend, to amend the constitution to say corporations are not people and money is not free speech. Uh, but now we're talking more about rewriting the constitution uh, and I wondered after being elected, you know, what part of that I needed to leave behind. Um, and then, you know, I started observing current elected officials in their transition from when they might have been community organizers or activists. And then when they became elected officials and I decided none of it, like I, I, I think to some degree there's this professionalism that happens both for activists and organizers, but much more pointedly for elected officials who used to be activists or organizers, and they believe they have to behave in a certain way. And I think part of the issue with Ash Cholera, which I'll mention, and then I'll get back to answering the rest of your question, is this belief among Democrats that the best way to convince somebody of your position is just to be really nice all the time and to, you know, show them the facts and, oh, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. And it's like, well, that's how stuff doesn't get done. If you look at the history of this country and you were, you know, talking about that when I first came on, things happen when people fuck shit up. Mm -hmm. um, things happen when the established order is disturbed. Uh, and people are like, okay, how do we fix this? How do we get back to calm? It's like, well, that was calm for some people. And that's the history of this country. It was calm for some people. It was calm for white men. And then it was calm for white and black men. And it was calm for straight white and black men. And, you know, then it was white women and on and on. Uh, and, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's about time that we had like a real reckoning um, that really can't be held down. Uh, by, you know, the growing police state. And I think it's up to us uh, to really push that. But do you know, uh, this, this is the question. This, this is what is so confusing to people because folks have deja vu. I, I think that there, there were these moments where people like Cori Bush, activists, right? I remember seeing Rashida Tlaib getting dragged out of some, you know, some event that she had been protesting by the cops and thinking, wow, like this girl, this, this woman's the real deal. Love her. You know, we've seen now 
you know, we, we have the narrative, which some people now are pushing back on about ASC being a bartender. Like we've seen this kind of working class hero narrative. We've seen this idea of an outsider narrative. You know, we've seen it and we were all excited and we all gave money and we all campaigned and we all knocked doors and we all invested. And moreover, even though the numbers are still relatively few, there were enough in a narrow house, a narrowly held house, that they really could have, in your words, fucked shit up this year. Mm-hmm. They could have fucked all this shit up. Literally, everything, every single shit <laughs> could have been fucked. Okay? Right? They could have been the mansion and cinema of the left, holding up every single thing in the house. Right? Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I 100% agree with you. And for me, um, I think it's, it's the stakes and the seriousness, but I think that comes with the professionalism. You know, once people are elected, they start thinking about the ne- next election. It's part of our system. Uh, but, you know, we have systems of support now, as I think you mentioned last night as well. We have systems of support to get progressives elected, you know, with small donations so they don't have to take corporate contributions. But I think it's this professionalism that keeps people thinking, oh, the climate crisis is a crisis, but I'm not going to push too hard. You know, how do you you get around that, Daniel? Because I think that we have to answer those questions if we want people to invest. So if if we believe that someone like Cory Bush was acting in good faith, which I do, you know, I, I do. And yet seems to have, been cowed in some respects by whether it's this professionalism thing or something else that's operating on her now that she's in in Congress. You know, last night, Marianne mentioned, you know, that it matters that people are in Congress and and used the eviction moratorium step sleeping event as evidence that it matters that these people are in Congress. But a lot of people would push back against that and say that they knew the moratorium was going to be invalidated by the Supreme Court that it was all performative, that there were the extension was ultimately null and void, and that they were basically allowed to do that to make us have confidence in electoralism and that the left would really make a difference and that we shouldn't be investing more in mutual aid or more radical actions in the street, doing a little Canadian trucker on the side. <laughs> you know, whatever it takes to make government actually pay attention because you've disrupted capital. So, so yeah. what, how, how, how do you, you're looking down the barrel of being in that position. Why do you expect it to be different from you than it's been for all of these other people who also seem to be good faith actors before they got into Congress? Because I believe, one, I don't believe in seeding territory. And it's not a secret that the United States and a lot of countries in the world are on a very, very dark path. Um, mm-hmm. I, I believe it's dangerous if those of us who actually do have a spine and a backbone, uh, who have at least some glim, a slim possibility of being elected, see that territory. I think it's, I think it's problematic sometimes when we make that our primary work. And I know people don't like hearing me say this, but I, I, I meant what I said. I don't think if you're an activist who becomes an elected official on the federal level, that you get to say, hey, I'm not an activist anymore. I, I, I don't have that job anymore. You have two jobs. Because um, mm. I don't think mm. electoralism alone is enough to push us forward. But also, I don't think electing me by myself is enough to push us forward. But I think that there is this growing cadre. And, you know, uh, I, I can't appreciate you and Marianne and all of the others who were on last night more 
than for pointing this out, there's a growing cadre of quality people. The excuse for a long time has been like, well, who's going to run? Who's going to replace them? You know, it's we only have a choice. We got to vote for corporate Democrats. That's not true. Um, to some degree, it's never really been true. People have just been propped up. And, mm-hmm. you know, right now there's a huge wave of progressives who are younger, who are shinier, who have better publicists, who are being elected, who might even be saying some of the same things I'm saying right now. But if you look at their track record, they don't do what they say. I, I think the successes that we've seen in local government are encouraging. You know, I'm, I'm a city's first African-American council member, vice mayor, mayor. Uh, we voted to close down the largest urban oil field in the United States. Uh, we passed rent control. We uh, passed reparations. We passed hero. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you passed reparations? Say more. Our little city, uh, Culver City, California, uh, was actually built by Harry Culver, the founder, as a white mecca on the west side of Los Angeles. Mm. Um, mm. It's a sundown town, or it has a history as a sundown town. Mm. A lot of black elected officials and a lot of black people who grew up in Los Angeles County knew this. I'm from the South. I had to learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a few of our residents took it upon themselves uh, to really just do a local history project about the history of our city as a sundown town. The fact that our police officers, you know, had a worse reputation than the LAPD, even in the 90s. Uh, And they came to us asking us to issue an official apology uh, for our city's history as a sundown town. This is something that Glendale, California did a few years before us. Uh, but me, I'm really not a favor of the performative. Um, and, you know, working with uh, our local resident, John Kent, you know, we sort of theorized, okay, what can we actually do uh, more than just passing this uh, resolution and apologizing for our city's history um, of of being a sundown town and, you know, restricting housing to people of color, black people in particular, uh, and over-policing black people in particular, which we still do, which I still uh, fight with our police department about. Uh, what else can we add? You know, we talked about, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, and then we talked about reparations. Um, and the idea was floated in subcommittees. The idea was spoken about in um, community groups. Everyone talked about Evanston, Illinois. Um, and in our subcommittee, I, I just suggested that we, you know, put it on the list of practical items that we can actually do to show that this isn't just performative um, and, and to actually move forward. We are a little bit um, more, uh, our hands are tied a little bit more in California. Why is that? In the 90s, uh, Proposition 209 was passed, uh, and it's basically an anti-affirmative action um, uh, proposition that the voters enthusiastically voted yes on. Um, and it's still in effect. Uh, there have been some attempts to repeal it. The last one was within uh, the 2020 election cycle and it failed. Uh, so, we're so, that, trying... so you're saying that that bars the affirmative action bill bars any like particularized racial payout as well? Yes, to some degree. But I've spoken with, uh, uh, well, one, Savvy lawmakers have been using uh, statistical approximations, uh, mostly for poverty, uh, to code for race mm-hmm. in California mm-hmm. for the last 20, 25 years. Uh, so we can do that. Uh, but we're trying to work with other cities like uh, San Luis Obispo, 
who've actually passed policies specifically to help their black residents, um, but who have found it legally defensible if they center uh, black residents and blackness and that's the priority for this project or this program or whatever. Uh, but you know, for legal reasons, it has to be open to everyone. Okay. But, but I really want to get, I really want to get while I have you here, this, this nail down, because I hear you on records when Bernie was running, you know, to me, the fact that while, you know, in 2016, while Hillary Clinton was a Goldwater girl and he was founding a court chapter in the university of Chicago, that mattered in 2020 when Elizabeth Warren was a Reagan Republican in her 40s and the 90s, not when she was some teenager, maybe figuring it out, like even Hillary, you know, yeah. that mattered to me because Bernie had already had, you know, 30 years of record of fighting for the rights of marginalized people and economically disenfranchised people across the country. Right. So I hear you on records matter, but here's what's the disturbing part and why I think people have completely checked out the people who had good records, the people who spent their careers fighting for Palestinian rights and advocating for home, you know, against homelessness and all of the things all of the squad members have done, spent their lives as teachers like Jamal Bowman and on and on down the line, seem to be participating in this rotating villain villainry where they'd share responsibility for hard votes. Like, okay, let me make sure that you have to vote for the iron dome this time. And I'll take the hit on the next bad bill. So to make sure that everything that needs to be passed passes, and we can hold on to a shred of progressive credibility. We'll do a stunt every now and again. Who knows if it was real or a pure stunt to make people feel good, like sleeping on the steps of Congress. And we'll, you know, we'll continue to post our act, act blues and, and text you saying so-and-so is running and you need to be invested. And because the people that we already did this for were good people, you know, had good records and still managed to disappoint us. Because we had this narrow margin in the House that really exposed the extent to which they weren't willing to fight. It would be a different thing if there were we, we had an enormously overwhelmingly Democratic majority in the House and them performatively not voting for bills wouldn't have mattered. In fact, I think if we had huge Democratic majorities, we would have seen the squad members never vote for anything bad because they could they could do that and still the thing would pass. Well, I don't know if that that's true. I mean, you know, California. And we have, you know, large Democratic majorities uh, on paper, uh, but there are a lot of basic things that don't happen. But I, you were but historic, but historically, Daniel, isn't it the case that when we had, you had a, a Republican governor, a lot of stuff got let through because they ultimately knew the Republican governor would veto it. Oh, definitely. And definitely. the situation we're in now is unique because look, what Osh was saying is this time we were ready. We had the financing bill. We had the policy bill. We have the Democratic majorities. The polls are on our side. We're in the middle of a goddamn pandemic. People are dying. Let's go. But, oops, actually, there is a Democratic governor who has represented that he is for this thing, and this is going to be sticky, so it's got to be killed. That's the perspective of people who are frustrated with Osh right now, that this was an opportunity to really expose how out of step California's electeds are with Californians. And we will not see that because of the a vote was never pressed. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're a California voter, it is not a secret that the California electorate is well to the left of almost all of our representatives. It's why we hear, th hear about things like single-payer health care, 
alternatives to incarceration and the like. Um, and, you know, mobile crisis response, which we move forward with in my city uh, and the like during election seasons. And, you know, it's more of the same without my, my I would say that there is a direct parallel between what is happening in California and what is happening on the federal level. Mm-hmm. There are a mm-hmm. number of people that I agree need to be called out. People we love and people that, you know, we think should be replaced. Like the the synonym for civility in my brain is just suppression uh, when it mm-hmm. when it when you're talking about it on the political level. Because when they mean be civil, they mean don't tell me that, you know, I'm a virulent racist just because I'm a virulent racist. Mm-hmm. And you know, like we, we need to be adults about it and not, you know, operate uh, in the context of how um, we were taught, some of us were taught, how uh, government should operate in civics classes in middle school or high school and, you know, talk in the context of how it actually does happen because it's nasty and it's full of money and it's full of people lying to people that they don't care about. And it's full of, you know, the people doing the most work suffering you know the most egregious effects of our entire system when it comes to COVID in particular uh with latino folks in california and los angeles county uh but people of color more generally uh when it comes to the working class who keep this entire country going 15 dollars an hour is an insult i mean it's an insult in california even more but it's an insult around the country when we know that we can pay people more when we know that we've had the capacity to have something like single payer healthcare for at least 50 to 70 years. And we we can't talk about American exceptionalism in one breath and then also say, oh, I don't, I, it'll never happen. Um, okay, well, let me, let me get some of the audience in here because, you know, I, I want to know what, what, how they're feeling about this, about this pitch. Clifford, you're still on the line. Don't feel pressured yeah. if you don't have anything else to say. Oh, I, I, I promise I have a lot to say. Sometimes my thoughts are really scattered, but I would love to chime in if I may. Yeah. Um, so what do you make of this idea? You know, I'm basically asking Daniel, like, why will you be different and how can we right. have hope? Where, where are you at in all of this? Right. And, and the re- the only reason for me ever calling in is just because I really, I've, I'm looking for an outlet that would be doing the things that I feel like are totally necessary. And I think you really take things apart. Well, so when I call in, it's really just because it's in response to when you entertain the electoral side of things that's a sign to me that maybe you're seeing something I'm not seeing. But then when you have this line of question, I'm saying to myself, man, I feel like she's covering all the bases I would cover if my argument was to not be focusing on this. And the only thing I can say, because I'm sure everyone who's like, okay, great, you don't want electoralism, then what do you want? And the only thing I can say is, I would really love to see like a real interrogation of like, this is where we're at. We cannot make the deadlines that scientists are setting for climate with our electoral system. It cannot happen. But there's so many historic examples of regardless of who is in the White House, it could be LG, uh, LBJ rather than JFK. It doesn't matter how progressive they are when they're pushed by extreme taxes. And, and when I say extreme, like I'm not advocating for violence or anything like that. I'm literally saying every episode you've had where there was a problem, it was there's too much money, like there's too much corporate influence. Mm-hmm. And so for me, politics is the polite arena that benefits the 1%. It's exactly where they want us to burn our energy. So instead of all I care about is like targeting the 1% and disrupting their money. You know what I mean? Well, That's well, all I want. As soon as they cost 
as soon as they're losing funds and losing capital on a weekly basis, they will act. And, and that's been shown throughout history. It's always once they start, their pocketbooks start burning, all of a sudden things start changing. That's Well, that's- and I, 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 I do not disagree with you. I just wanted to jump in. I think on the one hand, I think uh, politics provides some of the things that you said or certain people being in politics provides a, a larger platform through which some of these ideas, particularly around how things change, um, you know, can be uh, uh, planted throughout um, the electorate. Uh, because to some degree, you know, people think democracy is elections. And mm-hmm. to another degree in this country, when people describe what they think of as democracy, they're describing capitalism. And they don't know the difference to some degree. And I think movements like Occupy Wall Street, you know, are incredibly threatening because they're like, oh, wait, this is a system designed to benefit very few people. And it's always been this way. And I mean, the 1619 Project the same way. But I do think there is some value in having people who have a larger platform. Unfortunately, at the current moment, a lot of that platform can be gained through electoral office and it's harder to do in other ways. Yeah, I I agree with I really enjoyed your input and I agree with you. I think Brianna brought up Cory Bush. I got to say, when I was hearing about Cory Bush, I had my dad was homeless and and I uh, it, it really resonated with me. I was thinking like, good Lord, with her background, like this is someone who will be incorruptible. Like this is someone who will like never be bought or never be, you know, shut down. But I got to say, like, even with that platform and with those credentials, I, I'm just like, I I think the proof is in the pudding. That's what's happened. I would just say, like, I'm sure I've taken up too much too much time, but I really appreciate Brianna. I guess that's why I'm calling in. It's like, I'm not advocating that. Like, I, I really, I'm hopeful for Daniel, but I guess I'm just saying that, like, you always say, like, to push you and all that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and with your show, with your show, I, I just, I just think, like, we just need someone who's like, I'm going to fucking vet these ideas and get them into the mainstream and start disseminating this these strategies and looking at all these historic examples and talking about civil disruption and targeting the one percent really clearly going for the jugular kind of in mm-hmm. this way and i think you're like i just think the world of your uh, interviewing style and your thought process and that's that's really why i called in and i think you emails and and uh Oh, to bad faith. Okay. I'll check those. Thank you so much, Clifford. That's very kind of you. And I really appreciate, I think this has been really helpful for folks and I've kept you here so long because I think that you're articulating a lot of what's on people's minds, but I'll let you go. Thank you. I so appreciate Kevin A. Young. That's the book I sent you that author. Thank you so much. Okay. I'll check it out. Thank you. Clifford. So, so here's the thing. So first I want to say, um, uh, look, (laughs) I am genuinely ambivalent. I know that sometimes I can sound like a bit of a fin sitter in all of this, but I, I, there was this, there was this gap between the rhetoric last night and some of the comments that were coming in, where you know on the show last night I think most you know a lot of the women don't perceive there to be like a zero sum game between investing in electoralism and doing the other thing, which in the abstract sort of kinda, but people do have limited energy and they certainly have limited funds, and I certainly respect a lot of people who have limited resources who said, mm, I gave my last $27 to Bernie. It didn't pan out. A lot of people were hired that I don't think did a good job. I'm not doing that again. I don't believe in all of these candidates. I would rather give money to mutual aid. I, from my relative position of privilege, I can't really argue with that. I, 
I feel very uncomfortable asking anybody to give money to anything, especially since all the vetting in the world can't guarantee anything. I also, though, have had the privilege of talking to candidates. We all um, uh, saw um, uh, Parsons from Washington State call in, and I asked her, you know, weeks ago, why run as a Democrat? And she was very specific about the barriers. She investigated running as a third-party candidate, and there were real barriers to her being able to fundraise and compete at all. And when we're talking about people, we love having these working-class heroes. But the reality is the working-class hero is putting their entire life on, on the line without any backup, without any support system, often with kids and families and stuff, to run. And for them, they don't want it to be this performative thing where they can just be like, okay, there was a year of income and life wasted. And this is catch-22 where also sometimes I feel like because you have these working-class heroes going to Congress, even if they're not taking corporate money, even if they are not you know, doing insider trading, if you were homeless and now you're making $175,000 a year, if you were some lawyer going to work in Congress, you just took a pay cut. But if you're someone like Cori Bush, that might be more money than you ever made. And it's not that you were like capital C corrupt. But, you know, there is something to the idea that I am more comfortable than I've been in my life. I have health insurance. I want everyone to feel that way. But there's a little bit of a tension there between that reality that that perhaps our working class heroes are even more vulnerable to the the golden handcuffs of Congress than someone who is affluent. Well, I mean, the thing that I would say is, um, I mean, I used to criticize some of my uh, former college and grad school um, roommates for you know, believing that they were at some point poor because they ate like ramen more than once a week. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, I know you think you were poor, but for people who really have been poor, for people who've been, you know, one loan or one friend's $50 or one $25 check or one, you know, uh, action that they're not proud of away from sleeping on the streets, I can understand that fear. Um, I, I think, you know, what we're really talking about is a need for more systemic change. And that realization being something that people across the country, those who continue to vote and those who are completely checked out, realize. And people who don't like, you know, really talk about that, even if we think they're good people, if they're not like all this needs to change really dramatically, then we, we, I mean, for me, I don't know if they know what they're talking about. Like, I don't know if I can have a serious conversation with you if you don't see the extent of how the climate crisis will be one of the things that accelerates our intensification of uh, fascist tendencies, Mm -hmm. tendencies and the fascism that's already, you know, afoot in the United States. Yeah. I want to bring, um, we also have joining us Harpreet. Is it Chima or Chima? I'm sorry. Chima. Chima, who's running for Congress, another Californian in the ninth district from Stockton, California. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, I, I saw you, you know, weighing in on Twitter and wanted to invite you up. I, I know you've been in the in the room for a while and you've heard this conversation. What do you make of this question of how to vet and get some guarantee? that some of the progressives that are running now aren't just kind of using enthusiasm around Medicare for all and some of these things and turning them into slogans instead of things that are they're genuinely going to fight for even at the risk of their own careers. Yeah, I think for me, it's, um, you know, it's your theory of change, right? So I think there's this idea that progressives have that we can, once you get into Congress, then the battle is just in the halls of Congress. And 
gets moved out of the public sphere. But, you know, we know that's not how this works, right? Like on the, you have a negotiating table, so on one side there's progressives and on the other side there's progressive Democrats, but the, or corporate Democrats, but the corporate Democrats behind them have an army of lobbyists, they have unlimited amounts of money, and behind them is capital itself, right? And all of these people are in the know about who's going to vote which way, how much they actually need to weigh in on this bill, you know, what are the chances of it passing? And the progressives on the other end, you know, it seems like, yeah, they have the NGO sector behind them and they have some activists, but for the most part, they lock out the general public. And I know they want people on the ground to get involved, but it's hard to get involved when there's no transparency. You know, we're not really sitting at the table with them. And so, you know, why should people still... What do you mean by that? Sorry, also, if I don't know if you guys are listening on speaker or, or what, but I think if you both can put earphones in or take me off speaker, I, it will stop the popping, the, the popping, you know, the feedback that's happening. Um, but here, here's the thing. What we experience on the left, what I experience as a left media figure and what I've heard from people who are in that activist realm is that they feel ignored by the progressives in Congress that are supposed to be, you know, they've got power, we've got people. Well, the people are standing here at attention begging for someone to be, to take the adversarial approach that people like Shama Swant in, in Washington state have modeled putting $15 minimum wage on the map mm-hmm. unapologetically. People liked the AOC that on her first day of work protested in Nancy Pelosi's office and are much less keen on the AOC who is prevaricating about whether or not she be speaker of the house today and who voted for her to be speaker of the house when she had the full opportunity to not make her speaker. Every, every single person, every single progressive that's in Congress right now chose Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House. That was a choice, right? Like, that's why we're still talking yeah. about first vote. And it is very difficult to trust anyone. And, like, I don't mean to make that the be-all litmus test of everything, but it's hard to have a clear example. Everyone who was opposed to force the vote had a multitude of reasons that all came down to it's going to jeopardize these people's careers. Nobody's going to die, right? Like we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are actually dying. No real harm is going to suffer. It is going to befall any of the people in Congress other than maybe they'll lose their job. The job that they only have because they promised to, AFC said, I'd rather be a one-term Congress person, right? Yeah, and, and so I mean, I, that sounds yeah. good. It sounds good, but like I, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying because I, I, I feel like a lot of people get into it with that mindset, like I want to do as much as I can for the people that have motivated me to do this. Because uh, if I want to speak honestly, I never wanted to be an elected official. That was not in my game plan. Um, but there's so many selfish bought people in our system that if there aren't voices, and I know not everyone can be Bernie Sanders, but like if there there aren't voices standing up then I, I don't know i i hate to say that you know it's almost like you know some of us are forced into this but some of us are by our consciences and by our capacity for empathy for other people i think where we have failed is we have focused on electoral politics only and i say this is someone who is running for congress and so, i think know, there is a recalibration what, what changes? Because, you know, everyone on left media complains that the Congress people won't come on our shows with the exception of Ro Khan and got to give him credit for that. He will come and he'll face the gauntlet and he'll face the hard questions. I also want to give credit to Osh. 
He came on the show and he faced hard questions. That is, that matters that for that's accountability. You know what I mean? But there is not, you know, there is not AOC with all of her platform. And I, I don't mean to always focus things on AOC because I do think it's unfair that she gets more focused than some other people that are doing the exact same thing as her, Pramila Jayapal, all these other people who are, you know, but AOC has the biggest social media following and the biggest ability to say something and have an impact. If someone like AOC had partnered with the Medicare for All marches, lent her resources to it, sat and did done a Vogue interview instead of going to the Met Ball, or both, to, I did an interview at the Met Ball about advocacy for Medicare for All, any other issue, then I think people would not be so hostile to her right now on the left. There could be a relationship. The same way that she partnered with the Sunrise Movement, Somebody's giving me a little bit of hissy feedback. I'm not sure. But if you meet yourself, just stop. thank you. Partner with the Sunrise Movement to, um, you know, on the first day to do that process in Nancy Pelosi's office. She could be partnering all over the place. But what has happened is, what it feels like, is that their partnerships with these movement organizations have had the effect of liberalizing, moving to the right, the movements that were once radical. So now, I don't know, Sunrise endorsed Biden. Why? Literally why? I 100% agree with you on that, and it's something that I've watched happen to some of the similar organizations that are more regional. Uh, there's a, and, and, and I feel like it's, I don't, I don't want to go back to the same, like, talking point, but, like, I think people have been seduced by progressives who look like them, who might be, like, younger, who might be, you know, blacker, more Latino. But Daniel, how do you tell the difference? I want to get Serene in here to weigh in. I want to, I want to hear more from the callers. The question to me is, how do you tell the difference? Because without being able to distinguish between progresses and progresses, no one's going to invest in electoralism. Serene, what are your thoughts? Hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. What's on your mind? Yeah, I, um, I'm, you brought up a bunch of things that uh, I just... I don't know if this is like um, inconsequential ultimately, but I, I was wondering if you could pontificate anyone. Like, what do you think actually happened between AOC protesting and then fast forward to now? Because I, I don't, I don't like. We've all established that. Okay, let's say we ride with you, right? We do the thing again. We donate. We champion, you're different, you've got the cool graphics, everyone is cool. You get in. Something happens when everyone enters office, and it's different for everyone because, you know, for example, you don't see, like, Rashida Tlaib and Pelosi best friends, but you do see, like, everything you said, you know, the rotating villainry. Like, there's there's the own progressive version of it happening. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, like, what do you actually think happens? Is it really... Like, I'm glad you brought up the zero to 175,000 thing, because that's mm-hmm. an angle I hadn't thought of. But I, it can't just be that, because, you know, it's almost like... And, like, I'm, I'm torn, because on the one hand, there is, you know, I forgot who you had on, but someone said, like, oh, I, I pledge to be a one-term c- candidate. And oh, it's yeah, like, it was okay. Morgan Harper. You guys didn't like that. Biden I like, I like Morgan a lot, but... No, I, I like that in principle, but it's it, we're back to this thing of like, well, we don't trust anyone right now. So is there a way you can prove that? Like, do you have a backup also, if plan? if you're good, like, I don't want you to take – if you're good, I don't want you to take yourself out of the game. And if you're bad – Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. 
I don't want there to be, I want there to be more like whatever multiple decade Bernie type people. Right. Like he has I'm a sorry, it's windy. Yeah, Is sorry. You sound like you're on a beautiful walk with Hello? birds chirping and wind blowing, but if you can cover your speaker so there's a little less wind interference, I think that would be good. But let me give <laughs> let me give the perspective okay. elect elect an sorry. opportunity to respond. Yeah, I think uh, you know, I think the best way to tell at this point is if you're willing to be critical of the Democratic Party. Because what we see is basically they've used the extreme of the right wing, you know, the Pelosi's, to narrow the gap between, the perceived gap between themselves and the progressives. And so the average voter, if you have someone, if you have fascists on the far right, there's not that much of a difference between someone like Gavin Newsom and an actual progressive. But you need progressives in office who are willing to actually challenge the Democratic Party and risk maybe Democrats losing if you're willing to be critical of them. Because I think right now progressives don't trust the general public. They think if we're honest about the party, if we're honest about who they actually serve, then maybe voters will check out. And then we risk the right wing coming into power. And so they do a lot to protect the party. And if you're gonna do a lot to protect the party, then you're just gonna see what's happening right now. And so you need people who are in office who are willing, who are willing to take that risk of being honest with voters and hoping that you actually get more progressives in, in charge instead. Yeah, I hear that. And I like that. And to me, that's that's a litmus test. That's a non-negotiable. But also, it doesn't seem quite sufficient because, again, we all liked the cut of the jib of the people that are elected now. They all said they were going to be adversarial. AOC literally said she'd be a one-term congressperson. Right, but they actually aren't because, I mean, when AOC first went in, she was, right? And she talked about how you guys have no idea how hard they twist your arm, arm when you're in office. But when the new people came in, you know, you had interviews where they were saying, oh, we thought these centrists were going to fight us a lot, but they're actually really nice. And, you know, we all kind of want the same thing. We're just coming at it from a different direction. And so I think yeah. what's happened is you get, once you get into office, the, the people there are, have a, do a really good job of, you know, wrapping their arms around you and bringing you into the fold. And the only way to combat that is to be like Bernie Sanders, right? No one wants to it's hard to be like Bernie, the guy who was a loser in Congress or a loner in Congress for so long, right? Never invited to parties. No one really hung out with him. That's hard. It's hard to do that. And <laughs> Bernie I think says, the, the, the real reason I don't call you on your birthday is because you <laughs> never invited me to the birthday party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's hard to maintain that, right? And I what, think what, a lot of what, people what? get into Congress, they give in to that kind of social pressure. And so, it's well, different. Yeah. and you know, people on TYT have talked about how they really like that they're not based in Washington because once you have conversations with people, once you talk to them, it's really hard to be openly critical of them. It's really hard to challenge them in public because they're your, you know, they're acquaintances, your friends. You see each other really often. But well, well, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, I just wanted to say this real quickly because I think it's an insidious thing. Um, you know, I often talk about like um, the California of everyone's imagination and the real California uh, and. Specifically, the real Los Angeles County, where there is, you know, epidemic in terms of inequality. It's like, you know, you're going back in time to the Gilded Age. Um, but what I really should be talking about is the Democratic Party of people's imagination and the Democratic Party of reality, because that's what we're talking about. Um, and to some degree, I feel like it's not a personal thing. Like, I think our American society has uh, really really designed us to either find personal fault or, you know, personal uh, privilege or power. I think from, from a, 
a long-term organizing perspective, and it's one of the reasons I, I was happy to be uh, on on the live stream yesterday because at least five of those candidates uh, that are from California are people that I've been working with for the last you know year, year and a half uh, because I I know that they will stick to their guns, you know, and, and I think that type of deep organizing needs to happen outside of the Democratic Party. That type of deep organizing. Well, well then let me ask you, Daniel, why not run? What, talk, talk to me, both of you, about the choice to run as a Democrat. Well, I can go first, uh, unless, Harpreet, you want to go, because I, I was just talking. Um, either way is fine with yeah, me. Yeah, no, go ahead. So for me, I went back and forth for a very, very long time. Uh, I come from a tradition of some of the organizing that I mentioned before, but a lot of the organizing is a bit more radical than that. Um, I've supported a lot of socialists in the past and a lot of Green Party people. Um, and, you know, the Green Party, for all of its faults, platform-wise, has been fantastic for a long time. They have issues of race and gender and, you know, rich white liberals. Uh, just like the Democratic Party, but when it comes to actual policy that people are passionate about, uh, you know, that's where I was leading before the first time before I ran for city council. I was like, well, let me run as a Green because uh, Greens have been elected in at least the city council level uh, on in California. Uh, but the sad reality is if you want to win in most of the districts across the country, if you don't already have a base of support, uh, you got to you, you got to join the Democratic Party. There are activists and organizers who have a much deeper well of support in their communities who could run on the work that they did for the last few decades. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel like those folks can run as independents. It's something that I would love to see. Um, but to be competitive at all. On the federal level in most places. I don't think it's true everywhere. I don't think Vermont is the only outlier where Bernie is, but to be competitive almost anywhere, to be taken seriously, you have to run as a Democrat. It's the result of our horribly biased two-party system, which, you know, not only, you know, restricts things to two parties, but as a result, restricts the type of idea. Ooh, you cut out. You cut out, Daniel. But let me take this opportunity to ask, what about this 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 um, strategy? Many people wanted this from Bernie of going ahead and running as a Democrat, as he did in 2016 and 2020. But when he gets screwed by the Democratic Party, not taking the pledge to just respect, you know, to defer to the the chosen the Democratic Party that was been that was chosen behind closed doors, and to defect and go ahead and run third party, or in your guys's cases. If and when you are elected at a certain point, one or two terms, however long it takes you to win the credibility that Daniel is talking about, to go ahead and say, I'm no longer going to affiliate with this party, and here are the reasons why. Harpreet? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the party that you run on, it, it, you determine how much involvement you have with the party, right? Like, you can run as a Democrat and they can't really stop you. And you can have almost no involvement with the party directly, or you can have a lot of involvement where, you know, you're involved with the county level, the state level, uh, or at the federal level. And so personally for me, I would like to see more leftists after they run for a while, establish side, a side organization. You know, people say this is what the DSA should be doing, 
Whereas mm-hmm. that's where you're doing all of your accounting and your local level organizing. That's where you're getting people, you know, register, register to vote, determining your platform. And then you can keep running on the Democratic Party line and just have no interaction with the established party itself. So, you know, it's not a matter of what party line you're running on. It's more of a matter of who you're organizing with, you know, on the actual ground level and who's helping you make decisions. Well, can you really do that, Harper? Because part of part of the issue is that the Democratic Party makes all these demands. I remember when when AOC first won, she came to the Intersect office in D.C. and she, Ryan Graham, and I reported a podcast. And with a um, former elected a, a House member from, I think, North Carolina, whose name I'm forgetting. Uh, and it was this really interesting conversation because he was basically advising AOC, like telling her what she should expect in terms of all the fundraising requirements that are demanded of House members and how you basically hit hit the floor running. And they're basically like, get on the phone and start raising money for the Democratic Party. AOC is mm-hmm. now the second biggest fundraiser, I believe, in the House after Nancy Pelosi. It doesn't seem to be giving her a lot in the way of power because she still seems pretty cowed by Nancy Pelosi. In fact, some people have opined that because she makes so much money for the Democratic Party, that she's basically negotiated a deal with the devil where she might be in line for leadership if she just keeps her mouth closed and keeps raising money for a little bit of time. And we'll see what the end result of that kind of a Faustian bargain actually is. I can't prove that. That's not journalistic fact. That's just I'm spreading I'm spreading fake news right now. <laughs> but that is conjecture yeah. that yeah. people have. Does she actually make the, the required donations to the party? Because I think there are progressives who, at least before, were not making those required donations. Well, yes. With the scandal, what was it, a couple of months ago now, was yeah. that she had given all of this money to Blue Dog Democrats. It, it went into a pool, and it got disseminated to all of these people who are you know, aggressively attacking progressives all the time. The Claire McCaskills of the world got donations from people who thought they were giving to an AFC type. Yeah, well, listen, if, you, if you're lucky enough to win and you do something like that, or the party asks you to do something like that, that's, that's an opportunity for you to expose to the public how the party is actually run. Like The Intercept a while ago released this report that was basically saying the way um, committee seats work, mm-hmm. or whoever gets to chair it, is determined by how much you fundraise. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that should every progressive should be talking a lot about. But, and yet, you know, it's our I know, they are. I know. And AOC know. gets to go on TV. AOC isn't me, you know, like Bernie gets to go on TV. They aren't, they are not us who are like sidelined to YouTube land and blacklisted by people like Joanne Reed. They, they ultimately pull numbers and viewers. So they still get to go on TV. I, I well, and yet I'm not seeing them say any of this shit. I'm not even seeing them really saying the words Medicare for all anymore. Listen, I think at this point, it really does just come down to the fear of the right. And, there is this idea that we cannot criticize the Democratic Party too much because if voters check out, then, you know, fascism will come in or whatever. Well, well, and, 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 and the reality is the opposite. It's like the, the less we criticize the Democratic Party, the more we accelerate that march towards fascism. Because like, mm-hmm. fascism, sorry about that. Because like, you know, I, I was straight up pissed and continue to be pissed, which is why I said there were similarities between what's happening in California and what's happening uh, in D.C. in a context of Medicare for all, but also in the context of Black Lives Matter, because there was obviously an order that came down that said, don't talk about Medicare for all and don't talk about police reform. And it's not like people aren't, you know, still going bankrupt, you know, trying to get health care. And it's not like people who are Black who are brown, who are indigenous, but a hell of a lot of black people aren't still getting 
shot by law enforcement, uh, you know, without more than a, you know, 0.1%, you know, chance of any type of justice being served. Yeah, and listen, you had, I mean, you had AOC saying we got to vote for um, the DNC chair, right? Jamie Harrison, when he was still running for Senate, because we need that Senate majority. And, you know, if you're out there advocating for people like Jamie Harrison to get in the Senate, because you think if they get in, you can somehow pass progressive legislation just because they're also Democrats, then that's when you run into the situation, right, where you have progressives advocating for corporate Democrats, because they think it's, you know, a part of the greater mission. But for average voters, they're not, you know, it's not super clear to them that distinction between a Jamie Harrison Democrat and an AOC Democrat. And how could it be clear to them when the AOC Democrats aren't aren't saying anything? I want to, um, somebody who's back in the queue, uh, James, tweeted that his, you know, his issue is the environment. And you guys are in California where everybody's crunchy and green and says that they care about these sorts of things. But, you know, the, um, you know, he referenced them as, you know, the guy who's leading the Democratic Party. I assume he's talking about uh, Cedric Richmond out of Louisiana, who's like Biden's senior advisor in a coal, coal, uh, takes more money from the um, oil and gas industry than anybody else in Congress, has the seventh most polluted air tract, air tracts in the district than anyone else, and is in the pocket of big coal. We have um, Steve Reschetti, who's literally a former coal lobbyist, senior Biden advisor. Maybe that's who he was talking about. I don't know. They're all coal advisors. They're all coal, big coal guys. Biden's right up by big coal. That is not anywhere as a part of the conversation. Instead, when there was a mild criticism of Cedric Richmond, it was, oh, my God, how dare you criticize a black man in, in, in Biden's administration? Well, and, I mean, that's yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that, that's sort of what we need. One of the other things that I bring up a lot is California and the California legislature on the state level mm-hmm. is in a much mm-hmm. better place. 20 years ago, and about 20 years ago, the oil and fossil fuel lobby started targeting specifically candidates of color when they were at the city council level, and it was obvious that they were going to run for the state level. Daniel, what you're saying right now is so important, but for some reason, the quality of your line goes in and out. Like last time you spoke, you were crystal clear, and now it's like really fuzzy, like you're standing in a shower and you sound like you're underwater. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I, I actually, uh, I feel like my headphones died, so I took my headphones off. But, oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. when, I, when I take them off, you get the echoes. So I don't want to bring the echoes down. Um, are but, you, am I on speaker or are you holding up to your ear? Oh, no, no. I, I'm holding this up to my ear. Okay. I, I have, I have to All right, go ahead. But I can't turn you up anymore, so just make sure you speak up because I, I want to catch what you're saying here. You're saying that the Democratic Party started targeting people out of the lower I, level, who are I, pro? I'm, go ahead. I'm saying fossil fuel uh, lobbyists started oh, targeting uh, candidates of color, uh, like about 20, 25 years ago in California. And there was a lot of legislation that, you know, we can't pass this year, uh, or we can't pass without a huge outcry, or without, like, cities and counties meetings if this happened. Uh, enforce the governor's hand on quite a few different issues recently. Um, we, we can't have leaders on the state level uh, because it's the people who, you know, our country is valued in, in terms, I hate the term identity politics because I don't think you should ever operate outside the context of your identity. I think it's important, but it's been weaponized uh, to basically say, hey, this person's black, this person's a woman, this person's gay, this person's trans, 
so you can't criticize them for being, you know, horrible on X, Y, or Z policy. It's like, no, we can't even sit. Right. Well, James, James is saying that he was also, he was actually the guy who I'm referencing in the queue says he's actually was referring to Jamie Harrison um, when he's talking about the, you know, the Democratic Party being run by, by big oil. Um, yes. Yes. Quite literally. <laughs> and, and it, it is frustrating. Like, so, so I agree with everything you're saying about how identity gets weaponized, but here's the reality. The reality is that because of that, some of the worst people in our uh, worst of elect officials in America are black because they can run cover for some of the worst things the Democratic Party needs to get away with. And I got to say, Obama was part of it. You know, it remains part of it because he's the one that picked up the call and killed Bernie's campaign. He's the one that picked up the phone and killed the NBA strike. And then you I, know, I, dropped a Spotify yeah. playlist. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I completely agree. I feel like, you know, most of the center right politicians, which is what President Obama was, have been doing a great job of saying the right thing and like, you know, not doing that uh, when people are looking the other way. And I think that needs to be called out. I think, you know, the Obama legacy actually is something that would be very useful to be called out on a regular basis. So I think we're all in agreement and kind of identifying the problems. I want us to get back a little solution oriented, but I also need to, I know there's a long queue and we haven't been taking many questions. So Cynthia, speak your truth. What's on your mind? Hi, can everybody hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Interesting that you talk about uh, solution-oriented, because that's exactly what I'm trying to think of right now. Excellent. Um, I was so taken by Clifford bringing up the whole women's um, suffrage movement, because that's exactly what I was thinking about um, when Marianne brought it up last night. I got to see that little snippet. And I just keep... And and forgive me, I kind of identify as like a bimbo socialist. Like I, I'm very <laughs> new to politics, so I don't necessarily either remember what I learned from Schoolhouse Rock or know how like <sighs> legislation you know works and gets passed and like where we are in terms of a, a lot of legislation going on right now. Um, but like, I just kind of feel like this whole thing feels like a toxic ass relationship that you have with a boyfriend and you keep coming back to him hoping <sighs> it will be different. And like, I don't know, like I'm not completely anti-electoralism and these gentlemen seem really great. <laughs> and I think that they have the right, you know, ideas and that their hearts are in the right place, but it's like, and so I think that we should continue to, you know, campaign for these folks and show up for these folks and try and get them elected. Like, I think that that can be a concurrent project. But I also am just like reflecting at like, like, let's look at the history. Like, what, it, like, how has this changed? You know, like corporate money and politics and greed and politics. It's like, well, this kind of seems to be a theme that never seems to end. And if we're reflecting back on, you know, the past how many hundreds of years of history, when have actual, you know, when has actual progress happened and how has that happened women's suffrage movement civil rights movement labor movement you know like all of these things that happened because it was like people organizing you know not the people who we elected in power actually like and again this is where the the bimbo you know socialism comes in because i'm like i don't I, I haven't read the specifics of the history of like no cynthia don't this kind of let's let's put the question to okay. the perspective electeds like have right. you made an effort can you describe what if any efforts you have made 
to form the kind of relationships with community members, with the people in your district, that would enable you to have the kind of people power that's necessary to make real change. Yeah, I think, I mean, you have to be honest with voters, right? And so one thing that is often left out of these conversations about, you know, getting the right people into office is you can get all the well-meaning legislators into office that don't take money from lobbyists that, you know, is on your side. And then if they're about to pass something, you know, one thing is, I don't think we've seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of the lobbying efforts that will happen against us. Like Prop 22 out here in California, you had Uber and Lyft doing pop-ups in their apps saying, you know, you got to vote for this thing. But then after that, there's, there's capital strikes. And unless you've actually educated the, your voters along the way and you've brought them along the way, where you've told them, look, we're about to pass Medicare for all, but that means that the insurance companies are going to start saying, we're just going to start pulling out providers. Hospitals are going to say, we're just going to stop funding. We're just going to shut down. And there's going to be a moment where things get really hard and really difficult. And it's not until we go through that moment that we get to the better part on the other side, right? If voters are not educated about that process along the way, then you can get all the well-meaning people into office and either voters will turn on them or they'll blink like they did in Syriza with Greece and back out of the reforms that they promised that they would do. So, you know, personally for me, it's been, I, I'm always telling people about how the process works, about, you know, the reason that money is involved in politics, why they have to get educated um, about who takes money from whom, you know, all of that stuff. Because if you, if you're out there telling voters, just vote for me, then chill at home and relax and I'll take care of everything. You're lying to your voters. Because well, without their- one thing Ash said, and I resonated with me, was that he struggled to get to do that 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 educational component because he was just outspent by all of the healthcare industry lobbyists who were running all these ads saying what a terrible idea AB fourteen hundred was. And what's yep. interesting to me is, as a media person, one, I literally didn't hear. Anything about this. I'm online every day looking at tweets. I follow yeah. all these Medicare follow I barely heard anything about this until like January. Yeah, I barely heard anything either. And I know so it's basically over. Yeah. And I know he said there were, you know, text messages sent and social media money spent. But to be honest, if AB fourteen hundred was about to pass, there will it would have been a national campaign against it. Right. And that's just the truth of the matter. Like you can gauge how likely something is to pass by how much money the opposition is going to well, spend. So what do you think? You think, wh- why do you say you didn't have a chance? Because the, the, the posture, as it was explained to me, was that once it got past the assembly, it was really rocking and rolling. You think that there would have been some other obstacle that it was insurmountable? Well, I mean, like they were saying, there were people that they, you know, corporate Democrats in the assembly who still take corporate money. And I know most of them, all but two yeah. of them. I know it's ridiculous. And I know Osh was trying to win them over, but there, the reason it wasn't this like national campaign against it on, on the side of the industry was they also have their, their voter list, right? They also know which way assembly members are going to vote. And they must have made the determination that this thing's not going to go through. And well, so well, they put a minimal effort against it. Well, the, the thing that I would add too, and I, and I think the reason that there wasn't a national campaign against it is there wasn't a statewide campaign for it. Like I've been working with, you know, like single payer advocates uh, who've been pushing the legislation in particular, people who are assigned with the California Nurses Association, aligned with the California Nurses Association, and then (laughs) others who are more in favor of pressuring the governor. And can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
my headphones are dying. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but like, uh, uh, there wasn't a real effort to get it done. We and both of the groups that I am a part of, which are statewide groups and connections of groups of fun groups of fun groups, have been calling people's assembly offices and even though it had not gotten to the Senate yet, calling Senate offices just in case to shore up support. Uh, but we've been doing that by ourselves. Ash is the only person, to his credit, though I think he made the wrong move, he's the only person that's been out there. Every other co-sponsor signed on, did like a live stream, and that's the last thing they did. They put no effort into getting it passed. And and in the context of answering the question, uh, for me, I think it's very important to be connected to your community, your district and groups. And it's one of the reasons when I ran for office uh, for city council, uh, my intention was to run for federal office. But I thought as someone who comes from an organizing position that I should not run for federal office unless I can prove that I have a real connection to my community and can respond to their concerns, which is why I ran for city council. Also, I wanted to see whether or not I could... Uh, stand uh getting a whole lot of emails and phone calls from a bunch of people i don't know but uh... <laughs> but, but okay so but here's the thing daniel like i this is what i said to, to ash you are complaining like you're complaining first of all he would argue that there was a campaign against it whether it was national that he was facing and it was insurmountable but my point was i am I, i'm not saying like you have to come and ask me personally but there's any number of media figures on the left and you can say it's a drop in the bucket and you don't matter. But, like, we have been able to make some noise about some things in the past, especially when we were united around stuff. And that he didn't go on. I didn't see him on, on TYT. I didn't see him on Breaking Points. I didn't see him on Majority Report. I didn't see him on Chapo talking well, about well, any of this. Well, I would agree. And I would say there's also this uh... – there, there's this feeling from some, um, some more progressive Democrats, or at least people that brand themselves as such, that eventually they're going to really be like accepted and supported by the party. So they don't want to make too many waves. Uh, and I really think that was more of a concern than anything. It was more about the same thing that Manchin and Cinema and the rotating villains do. Uh, it, it was more about like protecting the larger number of people in California who are um, receiving funds from insurance companies um, to hold up single payer health care, both here in California and nationally. And and that's more what it's about than, you know, right. I, and, and I, I need rally votes. I, I want people to go and listen. If you haven't listened to the episode, listen to it. I also just sorry, we posted the video late, but it's up. The full video of it is up now on on bad faith YouTube, but also um, crystal ball did a great segment on this using the same David Sirota reporting from the daily poster. And when you look at the numbers, when you look at the number of millions of dollars that these healthcare industry folks have given to Gavin Newsom in his personal capacity and various runs to the democratic party in California. It's not like sometimes we have these conversations about corporate capture and ultimately the numbers are like, oh, $5,000, $10,000, We're talking millions of dollars. This is not a subtle buy-off. And not yes. a single person. I didn't see Ro Khanna, a California representative with a great deal of national 
profile on TV saying Gavin Newsom is corrupt. That's why I pushed Ashton in, in the thing. I was like, can you at least say to me Gavin Newsom is corrupt? And, you know, he prevaricated. I love that. <laughs> I mean, part, part of it is is actually like the voting base of the Democratic Party right now. Right. Like it's it's hard to be critical of them openly at because people will say, well, what do you want? Do you want, you know, fascism to come in again? No, I don't. Also, and that's think, exactly why I'm not going to vote for these Democrats. Right. right. And I think the, the second thing is it was just, you know, Asha's theory of how this is going to work again. Right. It was very just focused on what's going to happen in the halls of Sacramento. OK, we'll get a few more progressives into Congress. Maybe I can move like five or six people who were saying moderates to vote for this bill and then it'll go through. It's completely ignoring what's going to be happening on the outside, if you ever come close to passing um, single parent California, you're going to have this avalanche of money coming in, just pressuring the public, and the and the public has no idea what's going on, right? They well, know, I, know that. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say the other thing that I wish that more of the uh, progressive campaigns would focus on is not just the blue districts. Like the same thing that I think. Um, Harpreet, you mentioned before, and I think uh, Brianna, you mentioned as well, that has been operative with presidents. It, it doesn't matter who's president. Like, if you organize people on the outside and you apply pressure, we can get shit done. The same thing is operative on the state level. I have been advocating for us to target red districts as well, because the pandemic has been like, I hate to, you know, talk about crisis opportunity, but so many people have died. And I don't think we've adequately communicated the scale of the death and the scale of the preventable death, both in the context of us, you know, you know, moving faster with emergency policies, but also just having a single payer healthcare system in place. And, you know, I think we, we need to do those things in order to move forward. We can't just talk to us. Like it, it, it's very, and 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 I say this because I joined the military after I finished a degree in film, and I did not expect to make very many friends uh, because you know I my politics have not really wavered, but I did, and because most of the people that I knew there were actually, despite like the rhetoric, the marketing rhetoric around economic anxiety and Trump, which was untrue. Uh, People, you know, join the military because of economic anxiety and the type of economics that people across the country can relate to is the type of economics that relates to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Healthcare. Can yeah, I? Can I, I think, sorry. Sorry, go, go ahead, go ahead Cynthia. Cynthia. No, I was just going to ask, um, because I'm just so happy that you did this episode on healthcare specifically, because I, I just got that, like, Medicare for All book, so I'm studying up, and I do... I do feel like that is a position, economically speaking, where we can really reach out to like, you know, the Obama Trump-esque people or or even just the plain old right folks, because this is something that definitely, you know, um, hits everyone. Mm-hmm. But my question is like, um, where are we at federally in terms of like Medicare for all legislation or single, like, w- like mm-hmm. what's happening right now? Like- has there been something proposed? Oh. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm feeding into my anxiety. No, no, not you. Oh. Biden. <laughs> Elected Democrats. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, go ahead, I mean, guys. Look, I'm just asking, like, you know, because as I said, I, I don't necessarily know how these things work. So where are we, like, schedule-wise? Like, is there a bill that people are drafting? Or, you know, like, what's coming up? Where are we at on the issue right now? Yep. Right now? There is legislation. A bunch of Democrats have co-sponsored it. But I think we've seen over the presidential primary, co-sponsorships are basically meaningless. Like, I, I think this bar is really low that we have of, like, have you co-sponsored a bill or not? Because mm-hmm. it lets politicians mm-hmm. get away with a lot. I think unless you're actually openly critical of the industries that would be affected by the bill, that that should be the minimum, right? It shouldn't just be co-sponsoring and then staying silent on it forever. So well, honestly, Harvey, even yeah. that, because again, I don't mean to come keep coming back to this, but all of our, you know, squad members, squad the squad plus, whatever state members, however many of them there are, they've all been openly critical. They all ran saying the pharmaceutical industry is bad and corrupt and yada, yada. They've all said that. And I'm not saying that, like, they would vote against the Medicare for All bill if it actually came to a vote, but it's so beyond possibility. The same thing that happened in California would happen, literally happened last January. And I mean, like, that, that was what Force the Vote was all about, right? Force the Vote yep. was, a, it was a two-pronged attack. Use the vote for Nancy Pelosi, which they had the ability to obstruct, to force her to bring Medicare for All to a floor vote so that it, then we could also force the vote on that. See what I mean? Then we could also see where people really stand and and play the, put their cards on the table, and also be having a public conversation at the height of a pandemic before vaccines came out, when there was still all this sense of urgency about the fact that we have a, a facapta healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, part of it I think is just an again, it's a willing, it's an unwillingness to be critical of the Democratic Party because I think. When AOC was first in, I remember she threatened to tweet out the names of certain people in a meeting that was happening who were saying that they were going to vote against some bill. And she got a shitload of backlash for that, for, you know, exposing mm. the inner workings of the party. But, but I think that's what you have to be willing. No, you're right. You I know, think the like, only way this works is if we, right, I think the only way this works is if once you get into Congress, you have to be willing to open up the black box. Because right now, we have no idea what happens in Congress. Right. Like, what are they actually negotiating? Who's negotiating? What's happening? We have no idea. And this idea that you're still going to keep getting grassroots activists on the ground and you're just going to all you have to say is push, push, keep pushing. And people are going to keep spending their weekends doing stuff when they have no idea. I think it's, it's not a smart way to go. I think if you're honest with people and you say, look, yeah, we have like four votes for AB 1400 in you know the assembly that are secure. Everyone else is against it. I think more people would be willing to join. And now you know where the Democratic Party actually stands. Voters know where it stands. And they can make it into an issue like you were trying to say. It turns into an issue that voters can actually pressure their candidates on. Instead, it, I, there's this idea, I, well, the voters can't know. The voters will get depressed. The voters might not turn out. And so let's just keep everyone in the dark. And then we'll just kind of do our own negotiating on the inside. I hope but, you know, like, I, Sorry. There's one more sorry. thing. But I guarantee you on the other side, the actual powers that we're up against, they are not in the dark about anything. And so it's just not an even playing field. I think the the corporate Democrats understand it's them and it's corporate America and it's capital on their side. And progressives sit in Congress thinking, oh, it's just them and their fellow Democrats. And it's not. They need to get people in the know and on board to fight back. I wholeheartedly agree, like 100 percent. And I love the way that you laid that down, because uh, one of the things, and I'm not sure if this has been, well, I feel like it has it has been duplicated across the country um, when it comes to more local politics. I specifically like, though, you know, I'm not saying.
Hey, Daniel, you, you blanked, you blanked out again. Um, but, but like guys, (laughs) go go ahead, Cynthia. Can I just say the last thing and then you can move on to someone else. I just, again, this is sort of formulating my mind. Oh, oh, you're back, Daniel. Sorry. You know, you cut out. Sorry, Daniel. God, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I apologize for this. My headphones were working yesterday and they're not working now, but I was just saying part of some of the best progressive campaigns in the last few years has been civic education in the same uh, vein as Harpreet was articulating the type of education that it, you know, explains how things really are. And I think voters and, you know, even people who might not vote really respond to that, you know, and are really um, energized by that because they feel like they're getting something that they weren't getting before, which is honesty. Yeah, and to that point. Sorry, go ahead, Cynthia. Oh, um, well, I mean, I again, I don't know how this would work, but I think that like the I and I think it's very scattered, and you have DSA, you have like a lot of different grassroots organizations, right? But I just I just feel like the broad left or the more lefties of the left, progressives who want to pass specific things like you know Medicare for all federal um, marijuana legalization, all of these things. Like there has to be this just extremely proactive, uh, concentrated effort into something where I guess guess what I'm thinking is like, when let's say this bill is being drafted or if something's coming to the floor that there has to be like a major movement. Like I remember a podcast, I I believe you had Brie a while ago with Chris Hedges, which was like, Mm -hmm. when do these things actually change? When people are literally out, you know, I mean, they're afraid. Okay. He said we need a politics of fear. Yeah. Civil, uh, civil rights. So it's like, I don't know how we do that, but like I went to that sort of measly, you know, Medicare for all kind of thing that last year. And I say measly because it, it was kind of depressing. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. I was in Chicago and it was like maybe a little less than 100 people, you know, and I remember mm-hmm. just being like, where the fuck is it? Like, and I guess you guys kind of explain why, you know, as someone like AOC and like all the, you know, progressive folks in the in Congress weren't like, hey, this is when the march is happening. And here, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I like yeah, And yeah. also not just show up at a march, but like, fuck this. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, all of them elected Democrats. I'm ashamed yeah, to yeah, have to call yeah. myself a Democrat in yeah. the middle of a fucking pandemic before the pandemic. 80, what, 68,000 people died needlessly every day from a lack of health care. Right. And now these numbers are going through the roof. Now, there, I just read an article yesterday about the average bill that people are being stuck with after getting COVID and being hospitalized, something that Kamala Harris and them pledged wasn't going to happen when they were trying to get your vote. And now they're looking down the barrel of a midterm election and they know damn well that they're not going to give you anything for that either, where they're going to guilt you and talk about your ancestors fighting and dying and all this shit for that right to try to get you to the poll again. Fuck that. Fuck the polls. Join me here at the Capitol Steps or wherever we're going to be, and we're going to march on their offices. I'm a congressperson. I can get you in the building. Let's let's do our thing. Moreover, and here's the bit. I asked this to to Osh, too. Tell me who. Are you going to name names? You have the vote tallies? Let's know the vote tallies. Let's hear it. But he seemed to think he wanted to protect them for next year. Let, I, to your but, point about what AOC did, let's hear the names. Right. But they're not. But like, this is what I'm saying. But to my point before, I feel like we have to organize as one huge, like concentrated unit of people, because 
as if we are a major corporation that's putting pressure and lobbying for our interests because they're not going to do it. They haven't done it. And so we have to be like, okay, you know, he hit me again. I'm leaving. I mean, not necessarily like, you know. All right. I hear you, Cynthia. Harpreet and Daniel, this is what you're up against. This is what you have to respond to. And you have to convince people like Cynthia that you are not going to be another abusive spouse. I want to take Eric Gray. <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia. I got to move through some of these callers. Um, I, I, I can refer to some ex-girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eric, yeah. what's on what's on your mind? I saw you on, I saw you were listening to the, um, the, the, I'm sorry, they're not called Fred Hampton leftists anymore, but they're live stream the other night and had some thoughts and feelings. I don't know if you want to talk about that or anything that's happened on uh, or about this most recent episode, but let us know what's on your mind. Yeah. um, I definitely wanted to talk about that. Um, Because this Democratic Party just straight up, I've said I felt about it already. It's a, it's a waste of time to me. Um, It, I'm I'm just like I, no we we definitely need like like my thing is focus on like mutual aid direct action all this stuff like what the hell okay well I Eric let me let me focus this up let me focus this up for you a little bit let me ask you some pointed questions sure. the uh, our our friend over at um, Revolutionary Black Network yeah uh, Afini you know works for to get uh, she's on the Michaela Wilk Wilkes campaign campaign right. She's also a member of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, right? So obviously there are some people over there, including our friend Afini, who yeah. still see a value in some candidates sometimes. So it does seem to me there's some openness there. So what is the litmus test? Because it, while, while there was a, the tone of the coverage was, you know, no more electoralism, it's obviously the case that some people over there are both willing to support some candidates. And in addition, I've heard Nick speak very compellingly about how much he learned about organizing and how radicalized he was through the process of trying to get Bernie elected in 2016. I guess the, I guess the real litmus test is just like, bro, like, I know I've said it before, but like, like having real, like sincere anti-capitalist people, like having real... Like people who are like this this system itself is bullshit and something something like that, something substantive. Um Do you guys ever think look, I'm usually the last person to say stuff like this, but honestly, some some to me the ideal scenario is someone who we all trust feels that way because they said it some many years ago, but is not compelled to say it in the course of an electoral cycle where it might damn their chances of winning. Because I do sometimes think some of this sounds like op shit, Eric. Sometimes I feel like the only thing that would get you people to trust a candidate is if they said, I want death to America (laughs) and then vote for me, which, you know, I'm here for it. But do you, are you not at all? Like, how do you, how do you manage your expectations against the the likelihood that someone's actually going to be able to win with that message? Go ahead. Well, here's the thing. I just don't want somebody to be a token. That's just like... Right, but we all want that, Eric. So I I need us all to be thinking a little bit differently. We all want the same thing. The question on the table is how do you tell... Wait a minute, Eric. Hold on, hold on. No, no, wait a minute, Eric. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The question... I'm going to finish the sentence, Eric, because I got to say, Eric, it's my show. The question on the table is how 
We decide how we tell who is a real progressive and who is a faux progressive. We, we, I got a lot of people to get through, so we don't really have a lot of time to go over. We've really established that no one wants a faux progressive and all the things that have disappointed us in the past. So the only question is, what are we establishing as a litmus test so that we would invest in some of these candidates down the line it, to the extent that you are willing to do so? Okay, Eric. What say you? I'm saying I need you to actually like speak from not only life experience, have actual like have actual life experience. Also Did Cory Bush have, not have actual life experience? Yeah, but I wasn't done. Okay, so what else in addition to life experience? I'm just saying, have actual life experience. Be anti-capitalist. Too. Is Cory Bush not? Are, are all these? Did all those people not help themselves out as being anti-capitalist? Did AOC and all of them not say, I'm a socialist? Yeah, you can say that, but that's different than living it. Like, right. that's okay, but what does that look it. like, Eric? What does that look like? What does that look know? like? How Gee, can you tell before the fact that an AOC isn't an AOC, that a Coral Bush isn't going to disappoint you in the way that they have? It's a tough question. I'm not expecting you to say this. I'm not saying this. It's not, it's not really that, bad, that tough of a question. It's like, hey, just... I don't know, gee, not do this water, not do this watered down version of a Green New Deal and actually like, you know what? You know, how are we going to take this shit and I'm going to put it in front of them and make them reject it? Well, if, if I can add something real quick. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things that I've been talking to with like a lot of the organizers that I know both here locally in Los Angeles and across the country is, you know, it's great to speak truth to power and, you know, have a tweet or a meme it's mm-hmm. better to have power and it's better to not have to convince somebody it's better to source candidates from us and i know it's hard to define us it opens us to the same question but i i feel very strongly that you know we would we should be supporting candidates that already agree with us through their life example through their work um, and, and I, I don't just mean like, you know, oh, I, you know, I, I, I'm a single parent. I, you know, struggle this and that. I mean, like, you know, made some type of calculation at some point a long time ago, or maybe recently that cal- capitalism is designed to benefit very few people and, you know, might not even be interested in running for office. Like, I, I, I hate to say that, but like, I feel like those make the best candidates. I'm just saying, why are we still doing this tap dance with the Democratic Party knowing that it's trash? Well, right. so it, let me get that. Yeah, go ahead. Like, we, we know nowhere in the country, there's no, besides Nevada maybe, where the Democratic Party is half decent. And so I think when you have candidates who are going out and seeking the Democratic Party endorsement when they're involved with the Democratic Party, like if you want candidates who are for sure not going to give in to Democratic Party demands, look for candidates that either you know, the party hasn't endorsed or that don't seek their endorsement and don't get involved with them because that's where everything always goes wrong, right? Because you're, as a candidate, you're new, you know, maybe you don't know how to run on the federal level. You start getting involved. You start looking for help. Most of these advisors and most of the people on the ground level, they are, at least in my district, you know, even the grassroots organizers are involved with the local Democratic Party. And at the, at the county level, and it seems like at the state level, our party is happy to endorse the current incumbent who was also endorsed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, right? What a ridiculous thing to do for the Democratic Party. But 
that's just how that's just how it is. This is how the Democratic Party is across the board. And so, if you look at candidates that are coming up through the ranks of the DNC or through the Democratic Party, then you're right to question what they're actually going to do in Congress and your life experience and all that. It's important, but you see plenty of candidates who come from a really rough upbringing, who get you know shuttled up into the upper echelons of our economy and of our society, and then they're completely disconnected from where they came from. So I which think we is, need to be more. I think we need to be looking at it more from just who is around you, like who are you using for support to get into office, because those are the people that are going to determine your politics and who you're going to be loyal to. Like, uh, like Sawant, right? She's not tied to the party. She's tied to her own organization. She couldn't care less if Democrats or Republicans are winning or losing office. She's just caring about maintaining her seat so she can enable what the people want to do through Congress. That's the kind of candidate you want to look for. Someone who's not loyal to the party, basically. Yeah, but to Daniel's point, a lot of the people who are like that don't want to run. Right. And well, that's and it's hard to run like that because you need a lot of this support structure and you get a lot of pressure even from local people saying, oh, well, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Why don't you just do X or Y if you're trying to disrupt like the status quo? And OK, maybe there aren't that many people like that out there, but those are the kind of people that you actually need to run who are willing to go into Congress and then be like the Bernie Sanders loser and willing to criticize both sides and not get invited to birthday parties. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is I, I really appreciate all of us bringing up Shama as an example. I obviously was very inspired by her. I immediately ran and joined Socialist Alternative because I was so inspired by her. But it cannot be that Shama is the only elected politician in America that we trust. Right. It just it's not sustainable. Of course, we should all abandon electoralism. Shama is the only one worth supporting. So, you know, Eric, I want to yeah. ask you, what do you make of these two candidates? Are you someone who could see yourself supporting a candidate like one of, one of these gentlemen if you lived in their district? And I don't mean necessarily giving money to their campaign, but at least voting for them and maybe even knocking a door or two. Like if I'm going to do I'm gonna get, if I'm going to knock on the doors and do everything for you, like. Bro, I, honestly, like I said, it might, it probably wouldn't happen. Cause like, I'm still gonna have plenty of, plenty of my own doubts. I'm like, you're still affiliated with this party. So it's kind of like, it's kind of what I brought up last time about um, uh, Morgan Harper. It's mm-hmm. like, you're still attached to the party, you're still attached to this. So, what the hell? Okay, I I appreciate that, Eric. I'm going to bring James up because I see him. He's been dialoguing with me on Twitter this whole time, and I think he's got good things to say. James Rowe, weigh in here because you're saying online that ultimately people are doing a branding exercise wittingly or unwittingly for the Democratic Party and making it seem like it's still worthwhile by running inside of it. Are you not concerned at all about this possibility that maybe no one ever gets elected because the infrastructure for third-party candidates at this moment is so weak? Unmute yourself and, and, and weigh in. Hey, sorry. First ever time on call and you had to flag something. Anyway, um, so my, my point, I guess, is, you know, we, we touched on this briefly, but everybody who runs on progressive, you know, ticket inside the Democratic Party runs on Green New Deal. They run on Medicare for all. Uh, the current leader of the Democratic Party is literally a former healthcare lobbyist and coal lobbyist. So you have a party that at the 
upper echelons is fundamentally opposed to these goals. And, you know, three months ago, this didn't get a lot of news coverage. Really, only uh, Reed Sludge covered it. 83% of DNC members voted to give fossil fuel uh, lobbyists member at large seats. And that means they're now the people who vote on who to take funding from, who to back in primaries, what policies to pursue. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the squad, but not a single not a single member of the squad has even mentioned the fact that the party is currently run by a coal lobbyist or mentioned the fact that the DNC made all of these people members. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Hapreet was talking about how you have a fundamentally corrupt party. And I mean, I think his diagnosis is right, but he's also saying the only way you can win is by running in the Democratic Party. And from my perspective, the second you say the party can be changed, that you can reform it from the inside, you're actually just engaging in branding work for the party. You're telling younger people that there is a reason to be involved with it, that there is a reason for hope. But at the federal level, there doesn't appear to be any reason to believe that. So, you know, what you said is, you know, will we ever be able to get a third party elected? You know, that's an uphill task, but I don't think it's as uphill as replacing a super majority of leadership that is fundamentally opposed to the things that you want to do. Yeah, thank, thank you for that, James. So Harpreet, like, is there an argument that you kind of do an accelerationism and say, and everyone who wants to be a better version of a Democrat, instead of doing that, you know, or reform the Democratic Party or whatever it is, have a good uh, alternative party. Just, if it's so hard to make a third party, sorry, James, I'm just going to mute you because of the backlash um, feedback. That you just say, let's destroy, let's, let's tell people the truth about the Democratic Party, even if we're not trying to get into office ourselves, let's try to depress the vote, basically, and do, you know, a ritualistic Japanese suicide until the Democratic Party basically has to take a knee or else never win again. Yeah, and I would just say I never said that we're like the goal is to reform the Democratic Party from the inside, because I agree there's way too much money in that party for us to you know, ever get enough members to reform it. If we ever do get close, you know, they're going to split like Labour and um, the Liberal Party did in the UK. And so I agree. We shouldn't be, the goal shouldn't be trying to reform the party. I think when people make comments about, well, we just need 10 more progressives in Congress and then everything will be hunky-dory. That's not how it works, right? But I think also it's not just enough to run on a third party ballot because people will not show up, right? Like the, like I'm in a member, I'm, I'm a member of a union and so I do a lot of union organizing. It's even when someone's paycheck is on the line, it's hard to get them to come out to strike, right? And that's like an immediate win for them. That's their paycheck. It's hard. It's still hard to get people to get involved. And so I think what we need to be doing is if you're running as a Democrat, you need to be open to going and talking to people who are just politically active at all, right? The right is really good about this. That's why right now they actually do have a lot of people on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have their Canadian trucker protest, but that's because they don't really care what your beliefs are. If you're active and you're pissed off, they're like, Come on over. Well, do you think that Richard Wolf said recently on Jimmy Dore's show, and we're doing an episode, tomorrow's episode that I'm recording from Monday is going to be about the Canadian trucker stuff. So I'm curious what you guys think. Do you think the left should be out there trying to recruit people and making sure all of that kind of energy is, is funneled toward the left instead of allowing the right to basically recruit there? Yes, of course. Because look, the hardest thing to do is to actually get people out on the street. Like that is the largest hurdle. And you can't control where people are getting their information. You can't really control what their politics is at the start. But once you have people out on the street, that's when you go talk to them. I mean, Jane McLevy talked about this. Their reasons might not be correct to you, but you got to at least respect them enough to understand, okay, you're out there because you think what you're doing is best for your family. 
So let's have a conversation about that. Let's mm-hmm. figure out what we should actually be pressuring, like, you know, what's actually causing the problems in your life. But I think we move so far away from that. So this talk about third party, I think it's premature, right? Because we're still at the stage of trying to get people agitated enough to actually be politically active to then try to push the Democratic Party. We're because right now, most of the voters in the primary are just going to be like normal people who vote most of the but, time. But Herbie, can you do that from the inside? Are you able to get people agitated enough while you are a member of Congress who's spending most of your days on the phone raising money for the Democratic Party? I mean, that is the question, no, James? Yeah, I mean, that's that's my point is that, you know, effectively what you're doing by running inside the Democratic Party is working as a branding arm of the Democratic Party, regardless of whether or not that's your intent. You're actually just delaying the point at which you might have that inflection. I mean, if I could if, if I could change history, you know, post-2016 when it came out, uh, just how badly the party had screwed over Sanders, that was probably the best time we've had in 40 years for a dirty break with the party. And instead, you know, he looked at the specter of Trump and said, I'm going to throw in with Hillary. And, you know, the outcome was essentially you had a generation of people who had been activated for the first time since Obama and just got funneled into the party infrastructure. And, you know, if he had said, instead, I'm going to run as green, like he probably could have gotten five, 10% nationally. The outcome would have been the same. And you would have had the start of a third party infrastructure. Well, yeah. And, and I, 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 I agree with your analysis, James, uh, and I am echoing. So maybe. I no, that's James. Okay. Go ahead, Daniel. Okay. I agree with your analysis, James, to some degree. It's just uh, without that very large platform or person pushing the 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 processes for just getting on the ballot in most states in California is pretty hard. Uh, it, 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 I don't get me wrong. It, I guess it, it, it's hard, it's hard to get on the ballot. So I don't think you need to. I, I don't think we can put the party before the organizing. I feel like the organizing needs to happen before people are running for office, much, much before. So when they have a base from which they can stand and which they can, you know, have a really good challenge, which Bernie Sanders established, then yes, I agree. Okay, but Daniel, here's the question from my perspective. And, you know, I'm very, you know, I'm, you know, everybody knows I love a third party, hashtag Jill Stein forever. But like you, the, the argument is somewhat, sometimes you, like I, you guys are both here because I know you're running for Congress. Marianne felt so innervated, you know, energized by the idea of people running for Congress that she put together the event last night. Congressional runs attract energy and they, in some ways, take energy from other kinds of efforts. I'm not seeing anybody getting the kind of platform or respect for fighting for third party stuff. I know there's been some like, you know, Michigasa went down over with MVP. I haven't really been tracking it. But when before that, I was an enthusiastic participant. I was on the phone with Nick Brannon asking him how I could support. I'm still planning right now a third party. Uh, basically a, a forum between representatives of the Green Party, MPP, and Forward to talk about strategy going forward with third parties. Like, I'm invested, but I don't feel like other people are. I, and I think, you know, if people people saw people like you guys yeah. agitating for a third party at the same time as you're running, or at least with the same level of energy that you're running for Congress, they might have seen more credibility in the argument that we're doing like a two-pronged approach. But what it feels like is all of the energy is in the electoral space. Yeah, no, and I, I would not disagree in terms of where the energy is, but I think there needs to be a better interaction between the electoral space and the non-electoral space, because to get 
any type of um, uh, attention. And I feel like one of the reasons that you know who I am is I'm a registered Democrat running for Congress. I feel like otherwise you might not know me. Uh, and that's just a practical reality. I think there needs to be more intricate strategy in the context of, okay, I'm running for this now. Maybe I win, maybe I don't, or maybe someone else is running. Who ha- that, That's why, you know, I mentioned before, I think the people who have, and don't get me wrong, I've, I've mostly worked as just a worker. That's what I think of myself as. And I never really thought about um, running for office until I was like, okay, let's run for office. Uh, so there was, there was not a whole lot of work done promoting myself or any of the work that I've done in community for the last 20 years. Um, but I feel like there are a lot of people who don't have to promote themselves. There are people who are just, you know, movement folks and change makers in their community who would be the best subjects to push something like that, which I would support. But I also believe that we need to talk more about coalition and less about um, less about party. Uh, one of one of the examples that I love is Richmond, California where, you know, socialist, independents, green, and Democrats got together and pushed back against, what was it, Chevron? And, and, and I believe, you know, that is something that should not be like, oh, wow, that was nice. Uh, we all got together. I think this attachment to party uh, is, is detrimental to some degree. I agree that more people should not be Democrats, but I also believe that we should work in more coalitions um, with some Democrats, uh, Green Party folks, Socialist Party folks, Socialist Alternative, DSA folks, and independents who don't think any party represents them. I think that coalition uh, building could be more powerful than the hard work of getting on the ballot for a new party. James? So just to kind of respond to that for a second, I mean, you're talking about a coalition and you mentioned the Greens and then you mentioned Chevron, you know, uh, I don't know if you've been following what's been happening to Stephen Donzinger. He's a lawyer who exposed a bunch of uh, negative things Chevron had done. And uh, yes, 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 definitely. Yeah. So, you know, he's being prosecuted by the Biden administration at the moment, which is the same administration that put a coal lobbyist and head of the Democratic Party and the same administration that had the largest oil uh, like auction in the Gulf in like four decades and. You know, as someone who lives in Oregon, uh, I couldn't leave my house in 2020 for three weeks because of wildfire smoke. It was poisonous to go outside. And there is literally not a single Democrat in Congress who has said anything about this, that the party is currently run by a coal lobbyist. And you can go to AOC's page and search coal lobbyist, and you'll see that she has tweeted about it when Trump was appointing, you know, kind of suspect people to EPA jobs. Mm-hmm. But you have total calm silence on it when it's Democrats. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's like, yeah, we need coalitions, but I have, there's no evidence that there's good faith partners for a coalition on climate change in the Democratic Party. Even Sunrise Movement, you know, they gave Biden an F and then they turned around and you know, essentially pushed for his candidacy afterwards. And, mm-hmm. and by the way, won't come on the show. There, I mean, individuals yeah. who I've met are, you know, just like in DSA or any other org, are very enthusiastic and supportive and agree with us on this. But I have noticed that my emails to leadership to have someone who can actually speak for the organization on have fallen flat. I think, yeah, uh, James, I think okay. uh, they need to mute. But like, uh, no, no, I, I completely agree in those uh, broad strokes in, in, in terms of the federal interaction. But I think, but I think you know, in, in terms of long-term strategy, 
there needs to be like real regular meetings with people who are trying in a lot of different configurations. And I know Nick Branna as well. Um, and I guess I've known him for about three or four years as well. And, you know, the movement for People's Party is something that I have personally supported, but it's something that I have seen in a number of instances uh, be uh, victim process-wise of some of the same things that I criticize the Democratic Party of. And and I think in the in, in the context, I feel like people underestimate coalition, uh, but I think to some degree coalition allows you to have your own organizational and individual standards, but choose to interact with other groups for strategic reasons. And those other groups change. Sometimes you can say, oh, this is way too establishment. And when I'm saying with Democrats, I do not mean with the Democratic Party. I mean in these smaller instances where, you know, this Democratic person in this place, you know, is good. We've worked with them for a long time and they chose to run as a Democrat. And I, and I feel like the same, this, to, to respond to the question that uh, Harpreet and I had earlier, I, seen, I think there are a lot of people who went through the same process when they finally chose, okay, I'm going to run as a Democrat. And it's not something that I am proud of, or I think many other people are proud of. I think it's strategic. And I think until the logic changes in terms of actual chances, uh, it's what people will choose in a lot of areas. But I don't think that means that the coalition needs to support a Democrat. I don't think that coalition needs to support a Democrat. I want to point that out. I think the coalition can support an independent, can support a Green, can support a socialist. That I'm not saying organized coalitions for Democrats. Last comment, James, and then I want to do some rapid fire because we're coming up on two hours and I'm going to hyperglycemic and we're going to have to wrap. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to say, like, you know, when you say form a coalition with these people that I kind of outlined how I think that they're fundamentally opposed to things that I'm interested in, sort of what I'm hearing is like Democrats who thought that they could work with Susan Collins to restrict abortion from changing in the Supreme Court. You know, it like you wouldn't partner with the GOP to to get abortion rights stabilized like you know you just wouldn't do that and so i'm fundamentally i guess coming from it from that position mm-hmm. uh but then the second bit is you know you talk about how hard it is to start a third party and you know like it took 21 attempts to pass the nhs but they started voting on it and then they started peeling people off building a third party is going to be a similar process you have to you have to have the dirty break at some point and the sooner you do it the easier it is long term and then finally, just one more thing, and you can get me off of here. Uh, you know, I, I'm loosely supportive of the goals of MPP. I find it frustrating that they're basically going to be attempting to redo the work that the Greens have been doing since the 80s, which, as you have noted, getting on ballot is quite difficult. The Greens have, I think, 30-plus states where they already have ballot access, and so it's a little frustrating to me that the left is fracturing on mm-hmm. essentially repeating work that's already been done. Thank you for all Thank that, you. James. Thank you for being so engaged. Um, well, and can, can I just respond really quick? Sure. Uh, sure. I, and I won't respond to it all. Just the last part. Um, well, okay. The first part, obviously not, 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 not encouraging collaborating with anyone like Susan, Susan Collins, uh, but also the green party is not the left as much as I support many of the folks that I know in the green party. And I have, I've done events, um, I, with, with their last two or three candidates, uh, I, I, I've known them. Uh, a lot of them are my friends, and I mean they're candidates for president. Um, 
the Green Party still suffers from the same thing that, you know, Democratic progressives suffer from. They call themselves progressives, but it's rich white people who stop talking when we bring up race or when we bring up gender or gender identity. And that's not the left. That That's not the left that I want to work with to some degree. Well, but this is still the question, Daniel. Like, can you reform? Like, problems with the Green Party aside, is it worth starting a whole new thing? Which, to be honest, I don't see any evidence that MPP is going to be especially different in terms of who com- comprises the party than something like the Green Party. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just take over the Green Party? Wouldn't it be nice if someone who has some credibility in the Black community, whether it's a Reverend Barber type or a Cornell West type or an, uh, maybe a uh, Nina Turner type, said, okay, I'm going to do this community work and I'm going to, I'm going to make green black. I'm going to make green brown. I'm going to make green diverse. I would highly support that. Um, the green party, I think tried that a little with the Cynthia, um, blanking on her last name, um, but I, but McKinney, but, McKinney. Mm-hmm. but like, uh, I, I think it needs to be done with more thought and more detailed strategy. Like I said, like the green what, party. What does that mean? It, well, I feel like some of the th- the thinking that you outlined is all of the thinking that happened. It's like, let's get somebody who is popular uh, and progressive and agrees with our ideals and is, you know, black or brown or some other thing. And that's where the thinking stops. I think we're... They're not actually doing the organizing. It's just an idea. Yes. I hear you. James yes. says, and James weighed in on Twitter. He's gone now from the queue, but he says, uh, you're not describing the Green Party platform, which is considerably better on all of those things. I think he means the racial things in the Democratic Party. I hear that. Let's try to move through some of these kind of quickly, both the questions and the answers, just so that we can get through a little bit more of this queue before I have to log off. Um, Nick, what's on your mind? Uh, hey, Bree. Um, I just wanted to open by saying that the latest episode truly inspired me, dot, 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 to donate to the Green Party again. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, what do you guys say to that when you hear that? Um, no, but um, if, if I may, before there's sure, more. Um, uh, this is my personal look, because I was crazy involved with the Howie Hawkins campaign of 2020. This kind of... <laughs> This narrative about the Green Party being comprised of rich white people is is just fantasy on its face. Like, Ballot Access Committee was led by a man named Tony Indege. Like, the, the people on this call were old people, young people, hippies, women. I mean, not... <laughs> I, I didn't see anyone that I would immediately, like, uh, clock as being a rich person. I think that that's complete fabrication by the Democratic Party. Well, Nick, even if it is a... A messaging issue isn't it a messaging issue that needs to be addressed uh, absolutely it's an image but, issue but here's the thing is that they keep addressing it but uh liberals just kind of choose to pretend that they don't but, like... but come on nick none of us are liberals here so like and we i i will say that i have look i have been a green party voter obama's the only democrat i ever voted for but here we are I, you know I, I i i share the impression that the green party is you know, kind of a bunch of aging hippies from, you know, Sac- you know California who are old well, well, Woodstock I folks, mean, well, you know, well-meaning white folks. What, what I would say, and like my impression comes from my experience with the Green Party, which I have had experience with both nationally and regionally, I, I would say that the Green Party is like a lot of organizations where the leadership and the people actually doing the work have made efforts 
to be diverse, to address the concerns of people who are diverse and to put people who are diverse in positions of power. What I was saying specifically is the people that who vote for the Green Party right now because of the lack of effective messaging are rich white people. Uh, disagree. I think that they're the only principled leftists that are actually showing up to vote for the Green Party. Like the, the thing that I was incredibly disappointed by, is, especially this this last election, uh, 2020, is that basically what? Like a third of the people that showed up for Jill Stein showed up for Howie Hawkins. Howie Hawkins, union guy, he decided to make Ralph Nader the candidate in 2000. Ralph Nader is like the most underappreciated hero, really, of the modern age. I mean, they have done all of these things. They've presented a legitimate leftist uh, alternative to the Democratic Party. I don't think that they're failing people. It's you know. Do you have any look? You you got to have to have some introspection here. Jill Stein is a is a charismatic, interesting woman, and is a compelling candidate. I've Howie Hawkins. I I I I don't mean this as shade, but I do not think he was as strong a candidate as Jill Stein. I didn't see him anywhere. I didn't really hear from him. And part of this is that there was this interest that was there in 2016 that wasn't there in 2020 because Hillary was so loathed. However, like I think that there is also something that is about her abilities as a candidate. And historically, the Green Party sometimes picks people that don't come off as as serious, incredible. And I think that we can acknowledge that while still supporting the Green Party. Now, are you really going to sit here and say that the Howie Hawkins was the best that a, a third-party effort in America has to offer? Howie Hawkins was the option to vote for if you wanted less war, more health care. But I that mean, doesn't matter. Come on, Nick. Like, come on. Me, me, if bringing, I may. Like, not, and I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We're not going to. I'm sorry, guys. Like, I, 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 there's been a little bit of a run of people, like, who just think they can filibuster me in this context. And I was letting it happen. And I think there was like some imposter syndrome women shit going on, but we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Like I, I'm very gracious with my time. I sit here for a long time because I want to hear from you guys, but we're not going to just bulldoze through me. If I, if I cut you off, it's my show. I'm a host. That's my right. And I, I gotta, I gotta have you guys respecting that without me forcing you to put you on mute. Okay. The point that I'm making, cause I appreciate this back and forth that we're having. The point that I'm making is that, the, the quality of the candidate matters and that Howie Hawkins, even though we, we don't live in an ideal world where everyone's sitting there and just takes one of those polls on BuzzFeed and says, this is what my political identification is, and then stamps, okay, I'm a leftist, so I'm going to vote for every leftist. That's not how it works. In the real world, people have personal affinity for candidates and vote for people because they're handsome or have hair or whatever. And that's the world we live in. So we can sit here and wring our hand and say, oh, but Ralph Nader's a hero. I agree. I've said it many times in this show. He's a national fucking hero. We can sit here and say, oh, but everyone should have understood that Howie Hawkins was great. I had a long conversation with Howie Hawkins. I talked to him after the Bernie's campaign ended about how to support him. Da, 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 da. And I felt less inspired dramatically than I was by someone like Jill Stein, who was an anonymous person to me in 2016. And that is the reality. And while I might still pull the, 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 the lever on principle, because I believe in third-party candidates, and it could have been a, a tree frog on the ballot. Other people feel differently, and if we don't acknowledge those realities, if we want to fight tooth and nail and argue with people about, well, the Green Party really is diverse, 
when people perception isn't that way. And although they've tried with black people when black people never heard of the Green Party and you're not actually knocking doors in black neighborhoods and figuring out the message that's going to get through to them, then all the wishing and hoping in the world, oh, but we're better for black. Who cares? You, it is your job as part of a political movement to make the case. And when people tell you they're not, that you are not successfully making the case, it's your job to do better, not argue with them about it. And that's what this white Bernie bro shit has been so aggravating about on the left. I'm sitting here defending you guys all the time. And you, instead of listening and figuring out how to be better, just want to sit, rest on your laurels and be like, well, you know, they should have, the black people should have liked us. The choir, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this is you. Sorry, I don't know where you went. I was going to bring you back, but I guess you, you know, tapped out. Like, go ahead. The only thing I would yeah. add is like the first, like I knew about Jill Stein because I worked with David Cobb, who was one of the candidates a while ago. Uh, but my first experience actually being with Jill Stein was in Benton Harbor, Michigan, when we were both there for the Occupy the PGA protest, where Whirlpool is basically bought up the town to the detriment of a lot of the black residents there. And Rachel Maddow ha actually covered this extensively. And one of the last things that I really appreciated her for before I stopped watching forever. But like uh, Jill showed up in so many places mm. and Jill for a lot of people of color that I know nationally who are movement people, who are radical people, who are on the, what I would call the actual left, she made the Green Party more, more of something that they would consider. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think more of that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off and I really didn't, I wasn't, I just muted Old Slice. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to kick him off of the queue. If he wants to get back in queue, I'll bring him up again. Um, but let's bring on Case Steady. How are you doing, Case? I'm very good. Thank you for um, bringing me on. And I'm going to talk quick because I got to run myself. But um, first thing is I threw in my hat in the ring to be an editor for the Bad Faith Card podcast. So I emailed the Gmail Bad, Bad Faith podcast. Oh, wonderful. Um, and then, yeah. And then the second thing is, so we, we, we asked, what can candidates say beforehand? that would give them credibility that we know when we get into office that they would be um, do, they will be people worthy of our support, right? And I, I'm gonna say four things and then I'm gonna jump out. So the first thing is promise to go on independent media once a month or some period of time, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. And this, this, I'm actually asking Harper and Daniel if you guys can respond to this. Second, will you promise to force the vote, which is like Nancy Pelosi, she might not be there, she might be there, it might be Hakeem Jeffries, but would you promise to withhold your vote? Similar to what um, the, a moderate, there, I think there were two moderates that did that and did not vote for Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. so it's not that big of a deal not to do it, to, to um, not vote for the person. Um, third, will you endorse challengers early and often when elected? You know, that's something that um, AOC did not even uh, endorse Cori Bush when she ran the second time. And the last thing yeah. that I'm going to jump out, will you promise to do what Jason Call said, which is, um, I don't know if he said to, he, was, he would start his own caucus, but he said he would not join the progressive mm -hmm. caucus. Those four things. And uh, thank you so much. And I hope to hear back from you, Bree. Have a great thank day. you, Case. What do you two gentlemen think of that? I like that list. I mean, would you be able to pass that litmus test, the two of you? Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm happy to go on to whatever. I mean, personally, I don't actually want to legit legitimize mainstream media. I think not that many people actually watch them, and progressives would be much better off going to independent media. Um, so totally agree with that. Agree with the endorsements. Um, agree with forcing the vote. Look, I think the real litmus test isn't whether or not, like, what letter you have next to your name as a candidate. It's whether you're willing 
to speak and act in a way that will threaten the Democratic Party's either power or their legitimacy. And if you operate in a way where you're running cover for them, then people are right to not trust you. But if you're willing to, you know, like like Jason says, either not join the Progressive Caucus or if you're willing to talk about things where voters may turn against them and they may lose and, you know, the Democratic Caucus may lose control of a certain House or the House or the Senate, that's the only way forward. And, you know, if you're doing that, then there's not a lot of difference between you as a third party candidate and you as a Democrat, because you're just telling people what's actually wrong with the Democratic Party. And maybe that does push people into a third party direction. Maybe that makes it easier. Just right now, structurally, it is hard to run as a on, on a third party ballot line. But you have to have people in Congress who are willing to be critical enough of the Democratic Party where the leadership actively hates you and voters grow more and more skeptical of the Democratic Party leadership. I think that should be kind of a litmus test for how people act when they're in Congress. All right. Harpreet says he passes. Todd, Todd, what's on your mind? Oh, sorry, Dana, go ahead. Do, would you pass the test? Uh, I, I think so, but I might have to be reminded. So, um, Would you force and- the vote? Would you pr- p- p- de- decline um, from joining the Progressive Caucus if it doesn't meet you know, certain metrics, I, I presume? Um, now I'm forgetting the rest of them as well. Would you go on independent media on a regular basis? Uh, and would you, yeah, go ahead. So, so independent media, yeah, that's a no brainer. Um, I feel like that's the only way people actually know who we are in terms of forcing the vote in the at last instance. Yes. But you know, I love reserving the right to actually make up my own mind. So yeah, it like, does depend guys like that. The reason force the vote happened was because they actually had the ability to, to block Pelosi under nor- normal circumstances. I don't know that I would even advocate symbolically doing it. Although maybe I would because Lord have mercy. Someone like Pelosi is just so bad for everyone. She's bad for the Democratic Party brand. That so, who wants to be tagged with that? Why would you even symbolically support her? Yeah. So, so in that instance, happily force the vote. In other instances, I would have to like you know evaluate them. Um, sorry if this is milk toast. Uh, in terms of the Progressive Caucus, I think that's one of the places where we could actually mess things up. And be like, why does this caucus exist? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I wish I could give you a great answer, but I feel like I would want to think about ways in which it could be subverted first. And if right. I thought that right. it wasn't possible, then, you know, don't join. But if I thought that there was a way to take control because it's a smaller body, you know, it's not like hundreds of uh, representatives. I might just try to take that over. Well, I would love to do a whole episode with progress with electeds about, you know, strategizing what's the best way. If you are inside, what's the best way to handle something like the progressive caucus? What would you do? Like, can we get a roadmap going of if we do fight for these electeds, what specifically is going to be changed? What's going to be different? Todd, you're up. I want to, I want to, I want to like be wrapping within the next 10 minutes. Our guests have been so gracious and stay here for over two hours. So I would love to get through like four more people at least. Maybe that's overly optimistic, but let's try to do a rapid fire. Bree, thank you so much for taking my call. And it's great to hear Daniel and Harpreet. Harpreet, as someone who uh, was born in the Modesto and Central Valley area, um, I've got family in Turlock. I was just kind of curious, one, 
um, what your feel is of that area. Um, I certainly know that it seems pretty uh, conservative in my mind, but I haven't been there in a while. So I was just wondering that. And um, to Bree, I, I sent you a, um, a YouTube video of uh, John Stewart talking about corporate uh, profits and inflation and how uh, corporate profits are really causing a lot of inflation. And then a mm-hmm. Washington Post article of how the Biden administration is uh, taking out of their messaging um, corporate profits as the reason for inflation. They specifically pointed at uh, no, we, we, we don't want to address that. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Because Bernie was on Bernie was on doing that today or then this week and then i saw a fox news segment on it where they were all like bernie's stupid he's nobody's talking about it, except for juan williams and i quote tweeted i think case you know this is a case study video because i only watch tv as case clips it and was like based juan williams <laughs> um because he was the only one that agreed with bernie but i'll definitely check that out and that is that is crystal should do a, a, a read on that and it's, what are you it's absolutely now? absolutely ridiculous and i feel like that's just more evidence to james point and james was so spot on i could not agree with more of what he said that um we don't need more candidates working as a branding arm of the democratic party we actually need way more people to be as hostile and antithetical to the democratic party as possible Thank um, you, Todd. All right, yeah. I'm going to move on to Tucker, but Harpreet, go ahead um, and respond to the question about whether, uh, the, what your district is like, what that area is rent. Yeah, yeah, I think down south in the Turlock area might be a bit more conservative, but um, up in Stockton, it's the people here are really progressive, I think, but it's a working class type of progressive where they may not be into the same type of progressive policies that Twitter is into, but they're all working class, and they, they understand the class war a lot better than people give them credit for and I just also agree with your last comment in that, um, you know, yeah, I agree. Like, that should be the number one thing that Democratic progressives are focusing on this week is about how the how our party is, the so-called party of the working class, is protecting corporate profits, right? Yeah. If you're doing that, then it doesn't really matter if you're a Democrat or a third party. You've got to delegitimize the Democratic Party. Yeah. yeah. Tucker, welcome back. What's in your mind? Hey, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Um, well, basically, I was just uh, thinking about this whole how can we be sure that somebody's actually progressive and they'll fight for what they're going to do when they get into office. And there really ain't any way to tell. I mean, just look at Kirsten Sinema. She went into office as pretty much like a hard left green, green right? order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't a green. Not as a congressperson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But. She went in as that, and then now she's basically a Republican. So there's mm-hmm. no real way to judge before somebody gets into office, which is why the left needs an exterior outside group that will actually hold politicians to do what they run, which is why I'm so fierce on ballot measures, because let's uh, take California, for example. Like, uh, I can't remember uh, the state assembly uh, person that you were interviewing his name but uh, mm-hmm. yes uh he says that he is uh in support of it and i don't question it because he is supporting it and all of that stuff but it seems he keeps pushing it off and if he supports it why doesn't he just like push it as a ballot measure all he needs is like a little under a million signatures from californians I'm pretty sure he can get enough like he got uh, 130,000 votes like 
I'm what do you think about that? Because a little under a million, I mean, it is a lot. When I was talking to the whole Washington people last summer, you know, they were trying to get a million. And California is a much bigger state. There's a lot more people to ask than there are in Washington state. But do you guys think that's realistic? What do you think about this idea? I think it's possible. And uh, one of the things that uh, I am happy to have been a part of uh, with the move to amend is um, our volunteers in Washington state, which push WAMAND, a ballot amendment calling for an amendment to the Constitution around Citizens United and other cases uh, a few years ago. I don't have the specifics, but, you know, they got it done. Uh, And California, if we organize you know, if we set our priorities, that's that's one of the things like there's been fantastic work been done on the left in California, or at least progressives, not really the left, but like uh, we haven't made some of these national priorities our priorities. And I feel like if uh, the left in particular, and I'm talking about like the left that's more black and brown and more suffers from the effects of our health profit system which is not like a healthcare system uh we would have the power to do that at the ballot we would have it yeah i think it's realistic to get a a million signatures for a ballot measure in california for for medicare for all i mean i think it's unless there's some technical reason that you can't do it through ballot measures i think it's perfectly possible whether or not it passes afterwards again i think we would lack the organizing like on the ground organizing to actually get it passed i think you know, Prop 22, like I said, is any indication of how much capital will push back, then it's unlikely that it would actually pass. If y'all try to do this in California, I will move to California. I will move to California until this is done. We already established on an earlier episode that I think my husband lives in California, so it's a win-win for me. Okay? Strong, strong encouragement. I don't know who who you're looking for, but I I got a lot of friends who are progressive (laughs) and down. Uh, button real quick sure tucker interrupt my love life for you to ask a serious political question go ahead hey hey if your love life lives in california you need to get to california but until (laughs) then i'm gonna butt in real quick (laughs) Um, when it comes to the whole ballot measures like sure it would be great if it did pass but the thing that i'm thinking about is okay uh we could push a ballot measure that is exactly like the calcare that they were pushing or we could push a NHS style healthcare system, which will get like the more conservative Democrats up off their ass to actually pass this more conservative Mm. Medicare for all system. So it's more like a, if you don't pass this more conservative healthcare plan, we're going to pass this through ballot measure. So it's kind of like a do this, or we're going to find another way to interesting Tucker. I need you working on, you know, I need you working on, uh, Rashida Tlaib's staff is what I need for you. Like I, I need... would love that. I love her. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, the limited conversations I've had with some of these elected, they are like desperate for ideas. They don't know. Like they don't, they don't, there's no like pile of good ideas that they're choosing not to follow. Like they're regular people, they're teachers and whatever. And sometimes it's just like, they don't have a clue. And I, I literally and had a conversation with one of these squad members who was like, hey, what do you think we could do next to try to energize the left and get them excited about something again? And I'm like, I was like, I cannot believe you're asking me this question. <laughs> but also, this is the this is this kind of thing is the answer. Well, well like the other thing uh, based. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
No, I just wanted to say, like, uh, how it, it's brought up, like, it failed in Washington, like, the ballot measure push, or, like, the uh, universal health care system. And I'm just like, yeah, it's failed because it's pushed as, like, a state-level thing. Like, we don't have, like, a national group that is actually pushing it in these states while when they could just have a billion-dollar corporation come in and funnel it. And well, I asked Ash. I was like... Did you ask Bernie? He was like, it's hard to get eyes on this. It's hard to get press. I was like, we just had two national campaigns back to back that were all about Medicare for all. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, all of these people are Medicare for all people who are very well known and some of them extremely popular. Mm -hmm. That was some Elizabeth Warren shade. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Um, And, you know, why did you even ask them? And it didn't seem like anybody. He was like, well, the nurses were in charge of publicity. I was like, so you didn't call me. You didn't call progressives in media. And apparently you didn't even ask Bernard, no middle name Sanders to get on board. Yeah, he really doesn't have a middle name. (laughs) Well, the other other thing that I was going to say is like... um, as much as I love how much uh, L.A. County is union territory, the unions have been uh, they've been pretty much like the Democratic Party. Like, mm-hmm. it's like do, do you represent workers or do you not? But I was going to say, based on what um, Tucker said, like, you know, historically, when people have pushed for amendments to the Constitution, one of the things that they've used strategically is the threat of a constitutional convention. Mm. Uh, And I feel like, you know, one of the things that we've talked about at Move to a Bend for like the last decade is like, should we have that threat? And where we have been able to get into state legislatures, we've more or less said, hey, and you will call, you you will, you know, direct your uh, federal representatives to call for a constitutional amendment that says corporations are not people and money is not speech free speech that addresses Citizens United, Buckley versus Vallejo and Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, or we'll have a constitutional convention. But isn't the, isn't the thing about, don't you have to have X number of governors to call a constitutional convention? Isn't the problem that all the governors are Republican? That, 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 that I feel like uh, uh, liberal to progressive people have not been treating as a crisis opportunity because there's a Koch Brothers funded group that has been pushing for a constitutional convention. Right. And, they're, they're like two uh, states where they're very close to being able to get it. And and I want to be really clear to everybody. When you look at the divide, you might think, oh, it's like 50-50 because the country is divided and we swing back and forth in these elections. No. Governors, overwhelmingly Republican. Let me Google it. Go ahead. Yeah. It. yeah. Go ahead. They are. They are. They are. But the thing about a constitutional convention is like we haven't had one since the first one, if I'm remembering correctly. And everyone's throwing out legal theories about how it would work. It's like, oh, this would happen, that would happen. We don't know. What would actually happen is what happens in politics generally. The people who organize and have the most organized support willing to take the steps to, you know, ratchet up the pressure, those people have more influence. So even a lot of legal scholars think even if a constitutional convention is called on one particular issue, the entire constitution is up for grabs and most liberal people have seen that as a threat Mm. but if you look at our constitution compared to any other social democracy in the in in the entire world it it, it's not that great yeah well we just had an episode last fall with um 
I want to tell people to go and listen to it. It's one of my favorites. I always love when Eric Siegel, who's a constitutional professor in Georgia, came on along with a law professor, associate law professor from Harvard University, uh, Nico Bowie. He's the son of the late, great Lonnie Guineer. Fabulous. Um, and uh, there was a third woman. It was, I forget who was on the episode. Not the not the one with the woman. Actually, maybe the, no, Ill, 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 um, this, this libertarian guy was also really interesting. And the conversation was about Biden calling that uh, convention on what to do about uh, court reform. And they were all, they had all submitted proposals <laughs> to Biden. And of course he breezed over that. He doesn't meaningfully, he's not going to do reform, but it was a really robust conversation about how much we should be invested in our constitution at all. And the more progressive folks on the panel were like, no. So I highly recommend going back and listening to that. Thank you, Tucker. Omar, you're up. Oh, oh I'm sorry, Tucker. Sorry. I had to move on. I got to move on. Um, Omar, unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Omar, you still there? I'm giving you five, four, three, two. All right, Max, you're up. Hey, Bri. Um, so uh, we, we were talking, you guys were talking about like a litmus test for progressive candidates running in the Democratic Party. Because it seems like a lot of the split on the left right now, or the online left, or whatever, is um, is uh, you know, we can't seem to agree on whether or not we should continue to engage in electoral politics at all. Um, and some something you said earlier, which I kind of disagree with, was that you I, mistake me if I'm, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said something like uh, that there's certain candidates that you wish would hold certain beliefs, but you wish they maybe wouldn't say them out loud. Mm-hmm. Um. And to me, like, that's the kind of the, the main problem with a lot of progressive candidates is that they claim to have these beliefs, but they pick and choose when they're going to speak their beliefs. Well, Max, let me tell you something. I have some very strong feelings about dating and relationships that you would probably not judge me very fondly if I told them out loud. I have some really niche feelings about um, attire and how people should dress that are pretty downright snobby. I got to say, I'm very much a New Yorker in that respect. I have a lot of things that I believe that are my opinions, but I know are alienating, no, niche, you, marginal, and do not need to be spoken out loud. No, yeah, yeah, I get that. But that's like besides the point because that's like cultural opinion stuff, right? But I'm talking about when it comes to holding power accountable and talking about what you're running against. Well, um, nobody's talking about not talking about that. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I misinterpreted your um, – your comment. Then. No, look, we, we I've, encourage everybody to listen to the last call in, which I think was extraordinary. I had a really great exchange with someone who was saying, look, look, we're all so different in race and blah, blah, blah. But we all agree with, Medi- with Medicare for all. So why do we have to talk about pronouns and trans issues? And I was like, well, if you, that's a problem for you, I, I understand that it can be a divisive issues. But the fact that you brought it up in the context of this call has made it the focus of the conversation. And you could have just if that's an issue for you, don't bring it up. If you think you're going to door knock in a neighborhood or in a community that you think is not going to be receptive to those issues, don't bring it up. Bring up what you think those people are going to be interested in. Yes, yes. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. I'm not saying to like go to um, I'm not saying to like go to like a white conservative uh, working class area and talk about and only talk about defund the police. I'm not saying that. But I'm and saying it might that, be like, that people there like defund, but you got to suss it out. You can't just no, come yeah, yeah, down blazing. But LOL. like in terms of a litmus test, like I thought that a good litmus test would be that like because I've always because I've, I've kind of become interested in why these progressive candidates that seem to go in with good intentions kind of end up selling out for their for careers purposes. 
Um, and I thought about like, huh, would that happen to me if I ran and I won? Mm-hmm. Um, and I figured I was like, I was like, I think that because I'm so afraid that it would, because it happened to all these other people before me is like, I would like just, I would try to be as honest as possible all the time. Like be, you know, I would expect the, the democratic uh, candidate that I would, you know, maybe support it and uh, give money to or whatever to yeah. uh, actively call out both parties, acknowledge that the party duopoly is the problem and that money's money in the system is the problem and that both parties take money and both parties are corrupt and to like openly say on a platform, like, and I will do anything that I possibly can, whether it means holding up a bill, whether it means, um, you know, holding a, holding a, uh, a protest outside of, you know, some elected officials office, uh, I will gather everyone that I possibly can and do everything that I can to invoke change and get progressive policies passed. And if I don't, then play this video over and over again and call me a fraud because that's what I will be. That's like my litmus test. Mm. Well, I heard some chuckles from the guys, from our candidates. I don't know why I'm referring yeah, to I mean, again, so, T-ball players. <laughs> yeah, this conversation about whether you trust us or not. I mean, it's it's the same conversation I have with so many other voters, like farm workers especially. are, And there's a large number of farm workers in my district. They're fed up with the Democrats. You know, they say, like over and over again, the quote I hear is, you tell us to vote for you because you'll do X, Y, Z. And then you get into office and you treat us like dirt. You treat us like nothing. And because it's true, like we're not giving them union rights, we're not giving them immigration reform. And so sometimes it's been here, like, record me saying this, and then if I break my promise later, you can play it back and, you know, tell everyone not to vote for me. But I think, um, you know, so yeah, it's a, the legitimacy question is an important one, and it's hard to get people to to trust you. But I think, like you're saying, being honest with people about what is actually happening in D.C. and the fact that the Democratic Party does basically fuck workers across the park across the country. It's the only way to get people to, to trust you. Yeah. Any last words, uh, Daniel, as we wrap up, I'm afraid I've got a, I've got a jet. Uh, yeah, yeah. No worries. My phone is dying anyway, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I sort of agree, but like, I feel like this suggestion uh, really comes back to sort of what Gavin Newsom said. And it didn't matter. I think we need, and and I'm not I'm not an advocate for like more strict test because I believe like uh, the test isn't the only thing that lets you know whether or not this person is gonna really do what they say they're gonna do. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. like you know the the, the reason that it, it rubs me the wrong way, and I'd be happy to take the test. By the way, I'm just saying this. But like Gavin Newsom did the same mm-hmm. thing. He spoke to the mm-hmm. nurses. He spoke to people. He says, like, there's no reason that California should not lead and bring in single-payer health care to this country. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the reason now? It's Gavin Newsom. The reason mm-hmm. is Gavin Newsom. You know, so it's like, that is a test, but if the test doesn't have consequences, mm-hmm. that's where we slip up. And the problem is, Democrats have been able to say whatever they want to say without consequences. Yeah, we should have a whole show about accountability, how to get it, what that means. Maybe have Shama back on and talk about how her uh, organization provides an accountability mechanism and keeps her honest. I'm so grateful for both of you uh, candidates joining me today, taking the time out of your lives. It was a long episode, two and a half hours, and you guys have endurance. I know it's a little earlier there than it is here, um, but I really appreciate you and hope to have you back on soon. I think it was informative, and I really credit everyone who's elected, including Ash Kamra. 
for coming on the show and at least being willing to face the hard questions and, and the scrutiny of the voters, because I think that's another litmus test in a way to um, engender trust. I want to thank everybody who's here. I know it's got to be, it's really bitter when you're right there, Jam, Rob, Rika, like when you're right there, so close. I get it. I'm sorry. We're going to do, I'm going to do an extra episode, I think, on Saturday. I've invited some of the guys over from the Revolutionary Blackout um, uh, channel to offer their commentary on the stream last night. I know they were had some of the same concerns, and so it'll be a very similar kind of conversation. We're going to continue this on Saturdays so and come back. I see a nice big room. I hope people clip. There were a lot of really fun, juicy parts of this. I hope you clip them for me using the scissor tool so I can post them to social media. I love you for that. Um, don't forget to watch the video of this episode. It's up now on Bad Faith YouTube. If you want to give us a subscribe and a like, even if you can't subscribe to the Patreon, because I know times are hard, I really appreciate that. It helps us beat the social media algorithm. Make sure to follow this show and follow me also on this app. It's now for Android as well. So tell your friends, share it around. There are a lot of really great users on this app. Katie Halper, Glenn Greenwald, others. Tell your friends, great conversations. Um, and as always, Keep the faith. In this case, I think it would have made it such that, that we wouldn't have a policy success. All the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. I went for a walk on a winter's day. If I was in it, oh, California dreaming on such a winter's day. I went into a church, I stopped along.